Hello, and thank you for joining Geezers of Gear, episode number 78. Today's podcast is brought to you by Row Visual, the leader in LED display products. Row Visual's Red Dot award-winning panel, The Black Marble, is a high-end floor panel which brings creativity to your feet. Available with a high-contrast glass or matte or mirror finish, these floor panels are suited for a wide range of creative uses, like Latin American Music Awards 2018 and the International Dota 2 Championships. The BM4 LED panels are designed to offer a stylish solution for LED floors and integrated walls. The finish of the top layer allows for high-end use with a chic and classy appearance. The ability to mix and match panels with different finishes make it suited for enhanced creative experience in different applications. For the BM5 and BM5i LED panels, they offer creative solutions to any floor or stage. With its enhanced options like the anti-moire finish on the BM5 and added interactivity on the BM5i, these panels are an ideal solution for broadcast, live music, corporate events, and variety of other applications. The black marble LED panels are well suited to create an immersive experience on floors, walls, multi-level stages, or stairs. Check it all out at rowvisual.com. Hi there, and thanks for joining me today on Geezers of Gear, episode 78. These things are adding up, and especially when you're doing two or three a week. It is crazy right now. Like, I don't know if the word just finally got out on this podcast, but the thing is, people have suddenly woken up, and my email box is filling up with interesting people who love the podcast and want to be guests on it, so... I am now booked into April. Um, I'm actually just replacing one or two in March, but I am booked into April and it's going really well and we're trying to double up and do two per week right now. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm very, very grateful. Thank you everyone for continuing to listen and share and like and comment and all of the things that you're doing, following us on Facebook, etc. Um, you know, I'm having a blast with this thing. It is evolving as we go on in episodes. Every episode seems to be a little different than the last. And I appreciate that you are uh, not only willing, but interested in continuing to listen to this. So uh, very grateful. Thank you. Keep coming. Keep bringing your friends. Keep telling people. And so today I'm really uh, super honored and excited to have a guy whose work I've looked up to for a long time now. I mean, he's one of the hardest working uh, designers out there and uh, directors, and he's been crew chief, and he's been a rigger, and he's been all kinds of things. The guy works his butt off uh, out of his home state in Florida, where I am as well, Cosmo Wilson. And so Cosmo, <clears throat> I want to just kind of go down. I'm looking at uh, actually Wikipedia, his Wikipedia link, and 
it is incredible the list of people that this guy works with. Uh, starting from the top, ACDC. Now, not only does Cosmo work with ACDC as their designer, but has been doing ACDC since 1990. And so how many people out there are able to say that they've been with the same act for that many years? And hopefully we'll be going out with ACDC again soon. Uh, Aerosmith for the last eight years, since 2012, Cosmo's been with Aerosmith and, and currently doing the um, uh, residency in Las Vegas. American Idols Live, Black Crows, Black Sabbath, David Lee Roth, Def Leppard, ELP, Foreigner, Freddie Mercury Tribute, which is actually an incredible show. And I was so excited when I didn't know Cosmo had done that show. And I believe he did it with uh, Patrick Woodruff. But, um, you know, super cool show. One of those like goosebumps kind of shows whenever you watch it because Freddie had just died and, and the level and number of stars that they were able to bring together for that show just blew me away. Gloria Stefan, Godsmack, Guns N' Roses, Hollywood Va Vampires, Iron Maiden, Jason Bonham, Joe Perry, John Cicada, Judas Priest, Keith Emerson, The Kill, Motley Crue, M People, Mudvayne, Rod Stewart, Roger McGuinn, Rolling Stones, Ronnie James Dio, Scorpions, Spinal Tap, Spinal Tap, man, that is awesome, Steel Pulse, Steven Tyler, uh, Tamira, Tamara, Tamira Gray, Twisted Sister, Tyler Bryant and the Shakedown, Van Halen and White Snake. So that's uh, that is quite a list of who's who. And certainly he wasn't the designer on every one of those, but he was designer on a lot of them, uh, director on a lot of them, and either a crew member or crew chief on many of the others. But very very impressive list. Super nice guy. Impressive guy. Great designer. Please welcome. Cosmo Charles Wilson. Hey, Cosmo, good morning, and welcome to Geezers of Gear. Good morning. Thank you very much. I'm uh, excited. You are now forever known as a geezer. It's official. <laughs> and, well, I think I've been known for a geezer for a while, but officially it makes it even better. <laughs> well, and happy birthday as well. I understand it was your birthday yesterday, and uh, so one step more uh, experienced. That's what we are. Yeah, no, I, I agree, and as I always say, it's better than the, uh, you know, it's getting older, as, as people complain about it, but it's better than the alternative. Yeah, yeah, it's better than not getting older. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Very, being, being very one age for the rest. Yeah, you know, it's uh, someone, when I was much younger, I don't know, I was probably 30 at the time or something, someone said to me, you know, the thing about getting older is you go to a lot more funerals than you do weddings. And, and sadly, I know you're going to a funeral today, so it's probably an inappropriate time to bring this up. But, um, you know, in our industry, I mean, as we get up there, and I think you and I are similar in age right now, too many of our friends are, are, uh, are dying and it's sad. It's a bummer. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, in, in this, in this, I mean, you know, in, in any walk of life, people will get to a certain age and die. And, and uh, in this business, um, you know, especially with rock stars now getting into, you know, the, the original rock stars are now in their 70s. I mean, Mick Jagger, you know, I always look at the Rolling Stones as kind of the bellwether of, of the rock, you know, because they're still touring and they're in their mid-70s. And, and uh, yeah. so as, as long as they keep going, I, I, I see there's hope for our, our business from both the, both the technical end and the entertainment end. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and 
It is incredible. It's, uh, I'm I mean, happy to see. Yeah, what, sorry, go ahead. Whatever Keith Richards is is uh, taking today, I want some of that. You know, because it really is incredible the the amount of uh, damage he's he's put on himself, and he just keeps coming back out and you know back on stage every time they go out on tour, and it, it's incredible. I mean, it's a, a you know between I I used to use Ozzy as sort of that bar because Ozzy seemed to be you know uh, just undestroyable you couldn't you couldn't knock the guy down no matter what he did to himself and I think it seems to be coming back to him a little bit now but um yeah you know it's it's a rough business it some people I guess maybe get a little too carried away and and uh it doesn't work out well and other people you know at some point in their life decide to start taking care of themselves and I have a lot of friends in that position now who are in better shape at 60 than they were at 45 um, you know, which is a really good thing. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's, it's amazing. You know, it's, it's, uh, you would, you know, if I would have said to myself 20 or 30 years ago, what would I be doing? You know, as I approach 60, I, I wouldn't think working with these current rock bands, it's, yeah. uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. They're still here. Like you said, you know, Keith Richards, you know, Joe Perry, you yeah. know, these guys who did massive amounts of drugs and alcohol in their careers and, you know, that coupled with the lack of sleep and the schedules we keep, I mean, you know, it's hard on a human body. Yeah. You know, the fact they're still not only here, but they're thriving is, yeah. uh, is incredible. And, and, uh, well, and you know, I, I mean, I'm sure there's more to it than just, you know, I mean, it has to do with your DNA, I guess, to make up because I some so. people die younger and others last. Well, and the thing to me that's important, like I'm not a fan of some of the old rock stars who just won't let it go. You know what I mean? Like some people who, uh, you know, and I don't want to mention any names, but there's a lot of people out there who are still touring who or performing and shouldn't be. And then there are some, like one that you work with, Steven Tyler, who just blows me away. Because, I mean, all the problems and all the whatever aside, the guy still walks out on stage, acts like a rock star, looks like a rock star, still sounds like a rock star. At you know what is he is he seventy yet? Oh yeah, he he'll be uh, seventy two in uh, in March. That blows me March away. Blows me away. You know him. Well, I mean, uh, and let's go back to I saw I worked an Aerosmith show back in uh, probably nineteen eighty three or eighty four here in Orlando, and it was uh, the back in the saddle tour, and it's when they were coming back from breaking up, and it was when Joe Perry had left the band and Brad as well. And, uh, you know, Steven was still falling off the stage. And back then, you know, in 1983, you would have said, this band is washed up. They're yeah. done. Yeah. You know, and, and here we are nearly 40 years later. It is unreal. And they're, oh, but them, you know, it's amazing. You know, so Steven Tyler specifically, because let's face it, some of the guys in the band may not quite look as youthful as he does at times. But, right. um, you know, him, uh, Sammy Hagar is another one that blows me away that's over yep. 70 years old, and he still sings really, really at a high level. You know, maybe not exactly like he did when he was 40, but really, really well still. Um, Mick Jagger is another one that, you know, I mean, he, whatever, something happened last year or whatever, and he just went back into the gym and went into the dance studio and did all this stuff to get himself back in shape so that he could do live shows again, and here they are touring. And, um, you know, some of these guys, it's like, they are just incredible. They're, they're going to be rock stars until the day they drop. And then other ones kind of lost that, 
rock star thing about 25 years ago and they're still trying to do it and they don't look so good, sound so good, etc. But yeah, it's Well, uh, you're right. I mean, there there are there's a lot of they, like you said, there's the ones that are still doing it and still very successful and good mm-hmm. at it. And the other ones, I mean, I mean, you know, it's I, I think when I I was talking to someone the other day about rock stars as 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 a group of people, it's you know most people have a job and they do it for twenty years or thirty years, you know, a career, then they retire. Um, musicians generally, it's not a career or a job. I mean, it kind of it can be called that, but it started out as a passion. Yeah, and so it's kind of something they have to do. And I always liken it to Les Paul, who used to play in a club in New York called the Iridium. He did two shows every Monday night up until his, uh, I think he died at 93. And, you know, he could hardly play, and he would express it during the show that he, he can't really pick anymore because of the arthritis in his fingers. Right. But he would, uh, he would, as he called it, he would make it funny, he would, he would finger the guitar, uh, and he would tell <laughs> stories. But I think that's what kept him alive was, yeah. was those two shows every week. You I know? agree with you. And, I agree with uh, you. Well, another yeah, one that, that I saw uh, this past year was um because I had Doc McGee on the uh on the podcast and he invited me to come as a guest so I had to do my duty and I really wasn't looking forward to seeing Kiss. You know, I saw Kiss in I think you did as well in the 70s and changed my life. Yep. It changed the direction of yep. my life in in a sense. And I I read that about you and and I just went ding 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 same for me, you know, that was pretty cool. Yep. But um uh, you know, so I saw them so many times over the course of the last, whatever it was, 50 years or 40 something years. And, um, so I wasn't looking forward to it. I was like, who the hell wants to see 70 year old guys jumping around in spandex or whatever. I went to the show and not only was I blown away by the the production quality of the show because, uh, sooner or sooner just did an incredible job on the lighting. The sound was good. Right. The pyro was good. The stage looked incredible, but the band were good. And especially Gene and Paul. And, you know, I happened to have very close seats and Paul was probably 12 feet away from me. Normally you wouldn't want to see a, a, uh, 70 year old guy in makeup and, and high heels and tights, you know, 10 or 12 right. feet away from you. The guy looked good. He still had great moves. He, they gave a damn too. Like I just got the feeling that, as much as they probably don't love putting on that makeup and those clothes every night, they don't come out and give attitude about it. They come out and their attitude is, "We're going to put on a great show and we want to leave people smiling." And honestly, they sounded great. They sang well. They played well. And I was just really way over impressed from what I thought I was going to be from that show. Well, that's good. And I mean, I agree. I think a lot of people, it's funny. I've seen the, I've seen it come and go with, uh, with bands like Aerosmith or like Kiss, you know, where people, you know, they they were, you know, there'll be a critic that goes to a show and he'll complain about a bunch of aging rock stars on stage. And then a few years later, a critic, maybe the same, maybe a different one. will talk about how great this band is. It's, it's, it's almost like, the the uh, let's let's pick on this band, you know, like a bunch of old rock stars. Yeah. And then you know, like you said, and the way I feel about it is, all these bands now have been playing. You know, whether they're singing or playing guitar or, or bass or drums, they get better. And it's like, well, what do you expect? This is what happens when you know, as they say, practice makes perfect. Yeah. And the more experience you get at something, the better you get at something. So, the guitar players should be better. Yeah. You know, as long as they continue to play and write and perform, they're going to get better. 
Yeah. And so I see guys now on stage, and I'm blown away at how good they are. Yeah. And that that it means a lot to, to see to see them doing that. But that just shows us their passion. But Steven Tyler, again, going back to him, is just one guy that for me. Like every time I see him go on, you know, some television show or walk up to a busker on the street or whatever and start playing Dream On on a piano and singing it and hitting the high parts. And, you know, I mean, it's like and you might be cringing because you remember the bad nights in the past eight years when he didn't quite hit those good notes or whatever. But, um, you know, it blows me away that a guy of that age who's been doing it this long can still, you know, and. I don't know. I, like, I don't know what he's doing different than a lot of other people where he can still hit those notes. Cause I know even me and I haven't been that abusive on myself. I can't, I used to be a singer and I can't hit the notes that I did even 25 years ago. So, uh, good on. Well, him. I mean, I think, I mean, Steven Tyler is an anomaly in, in one respect. I mean, he had issues, uh, you know, a decade or two ago. He, um, and he had to have, uh, there was a vocal surgery procedure that he had done. That's common. Um, but it worked really well on him, and it allowed him to to carry on. Um, it, and I'm not just going to say it's the surgery that he had. I mean that was that was a, yeah, a helpful thing. It's like getting any surgery; you have to have therapy yeah. afterwards and take care of yourself. And I, and I've got to say, in the past eight eight and eight eight to ten years that I worked with them on this on this run, they uh, Steven Tyler has really worked very hard at at you know getting himself to where he is now. It's not like he just comes in and sings he yeah he takes good care of himself he works out he, he his diet is very restrictive yeah um and, Lifestyle changes. and, and so i yeah. mean it's, it's a culmination of, of things and i mean i gotta say you know he's had he had the odd night but for the most part he's so consistent with the singing yeah um that's awesome. you know and that's the reason why he doesn't do an overnighter because he he needs the rest he needs to rest his vocal cords yeah you know yeah. and no, that's, I, a, that's a key thing well, him, for some reason, him and Sammy Hagar are the two that always jump out to me because, you know, they're just guys that every time you see them, they sound good. You, they don't seem to have a really, like at least on the YouTube videos and stuff that I watch, um, they just don't seem to have terrible nights very often anyways. I mean, the certainly, what was it, an awards show or something that Aerosmith was on recently that they sounded pretty horrible, but... Other than that, I mean, you know, that was an well, yeah, there was there was that Grammy performance, and the sad thing about that is, in the arena, it actually sounded fine. Oh, really? Um, it was a, it was more to do with the you know the truck, you know, the the, the system that went from the stage to the truck to to your television. Yeah. Um, and and I mean, it, it sounded they sounded you know really good that night. Um, wow. in the arena, and you know, they've since done a. Uh, the release of the video, and it, and it sounds much better on there. And they didn't, they just remixed it. They didn't. Uh, touch anything up so yeah. i think it was just a matter of just you know bad but mixing it's, on, on it's, that respect it's bizarre because that really is the first time that i think i've seen them on any kind of a live video or anything sound bad like like i mean right. bad bad not not you know a little bit off or whatever but so how did you get started? Like, I know, uh, I read somewhere that you, you, uh, similar to me, you know, I was already in a band when I saw Kiss for the first time and it just, it really gave me passion towards being, um, either a musician or in the business somehow. But, and I read somewhere that you had a similar experience with Kiss. Well, I mean, I was as, as a, you know, I was born in 1961. I'm kidding, but, yeah. but, but you, you saying that, 
um, growing up, um, you know, I, I guess I hit my musical, you know, when you start really listening to music, I mean, I remember listening to the Beatles. My mother played the Beatles and stuff like that and, I, and that, 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 that kind of stuff. But when, you know, when I saw Kiss when I was 15 in 1976. Yeah. And in the early 70s, I was really turned on to music, like the Who and the, even the Beatles. I was blown away. Beatles were my favorite band at the time. But, and then Kiss came out. And I was living in New York, so you know, there was a connection there with, with Kiss and the New York scene. And um, I'd moved back to Florida um, about 76. Mm-hmm. And and um, Kiss actually was playing at the Lakeland Civic Center, which is my local arena. Uh, it, it's about it's about an hour from Orlando, and so I begged my parents to get me and my at the time girlfriend tickets to the show. And uh, the opening act, uh, funny enough, was a bang, was, was Uriah Heep. Oh. Um, I knew who they were and and stuff, but I wasn't a huge fan. But they went on first, and I was kind of confused, and then I realized it was an op- the support act. And uh, and this was the, I remember the date December twelfth nineteen seventy six and and uh, Kiss went on stage I mean you know the build up to it reading the newspapers you know it was a big deal coming to Central Florida yeah you know and uh, and they, so I mean I at that kind of point in time I decided I want to be a rock star but that getting back to that experience so anyway I get dropped off I go into Lakeland Civic Center and I'll never forget walking through the you know with my ticket coming in walking through the uh, H you know the the, the vomitory to come in. And I'll never forget, I mean, that to me at the time, it, it, I'd never been in an arena like that before, or any arena. The best. Of, so here is this humongous arena. I mean, to me, it was just ginormous. Yeah. And I walk up, and then I see the stage, and above the stage is this lighting rig hanging from, you know, points. And I had no idea. It just was this incredible-looking thing. And, and um, you know, I, I watched, uh, I, you know, I walked around, and I, I watched uh, people climb ladders to get up to, at the time, I didn't know, but it was trust spots. And. I was just mesmerized and blown away by that. And it's funny, I didn't think about it. it I mean, it, hasn't, it It probably had bearing on my lighting now, but back then it didn't. I was just blown away that I've never seen anything like this. And then they went on stage, and my God, the, the pyro, the lighting, uh, the spotlights. And the odd thing with that one show is um, Ace Freely was coming down the stairs because that's where they started up at the top, and they came down, and he touched the railing, and he got an electric jolt. He fell down the stairs, and they stopped the show. Um, and this is a you know, very well-known incident now in the Kiss Kiss history. Wow! Um, and actually, he he they wrote a song called "Shock Me" and based on that event. So I I got to see history on Kiss without even knowing it until many 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 years later. Wow! You know, first I thought it was part of the show. Yeah. I thought it was part of the show, and then did, they said that that Ace had been electrocuted, but he was going to be okay, and they went on and finished playing. And did you ever go I, back to just, figure you know, out what that was? Why that happened? Well, they said it was just a it, he had it was just it was just ground problem with his guitar when he touched the set. Yeah. It just shocked him. I mean, it's it's, it's a they you know you can go on the, online and find out about the incident now, but it's it, yeah. you know at the time nobody mm-hmm. he didn't realize, especially without the internet, nobody I don't even remember reading about it. It was just a, he just fell down the stairs. They stopped the show and then they continued to play and then people moved on. He didn't think about it, but. It's it's um, bizarre because that, that, we we actually ahead. had a whole episode, not a whole episode, but I think we talked about a half hour on one of our episodes, and I think it was related to uh, safety and security at shows, and um, but we talked about how many singers specifically were either killed or electrocuted by their microphones, you know, by touching right. their microphone and their microphone, you know, there was a ground missing somewhere or whatever. 
and uh, and they were shocked. And um, Richard Kadena, I don't know if you know Richard, but oh no, yeah, I know. Richard. Yeah, yeah, so Richard's really really smart, and he talks. He does um, a lot of training to uh, you know electricians basically. And talking about ways to avoid, you know, these these electrical problems and, and things. So, yeah, it's an interesting topic, but it's bizarre that at your first ever show that happened. And I didn't know that that's what Shock Me was about. Yeah, it, it, it's it's very funny that that um, that, as I said, looking back, you know, and hearing about it now and how 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 how, it, how famous it was, I guess, but not at the time. Yeah. You know, it's kind of, and like you said, it's my first concert and I saw that. So that I was, know, that was pretty crazy. Yeah. That's nuts. But I am, you know, having that concert for me, um, you know, like you said, it impressed me so much. It made me want to be a rock star at, at uh, 15 years old. I, I wanted to be a rock star. Um, I, you know, I mean, I still, to this day, I have, well, I have a poster for that. I bought the destroyer poster, which I have hanging. Um, oh, I have wow. the ticket stub and I have a small bag of confetti. That, that had collected because I had, it's funny, I had bell bottoms with cuffs and confetti collectors. I picked it up as well and I put it in a bag and I've saved that little bit of confetti ever since. That is crazy. Uh, that, that's funny. I well, that's that. how much it meant to me. That, yeah, that show, you know, that is and, awesome. And after that, the next band I saw was uh, funny enough, Aerosmith. And, and, uh, you know, so I started going to concerts and I just, you know, fell in love with concerts and live music and, yeah. and I wanted to be a rock star. My mother would say, what do you want to, I said, I told her I'm going to be a rock star by the time I was 18. Yeah, you know, and I started playing in a band in, in high school, and uh, I moved around a lot when I was young. I because uh, my dad was an architect, so we moved back and forth between New York and right. Florida. Did you, so. did you play guitar? Yeah, I was a guitar player, and and I played in a band. My first band was a band called Two Hundred Proof, and and I was okay, but I was more of a rhythm guitar player, and and just moving around was hard because I'd leave the band, and and um, and I'd moved back to New York in 1970, uh, basically 78. Mm-hmm. And I started uh, in 1979. I, I, uh, I got a friend of mine that I went to high school with was working for a band in New York called Falconetti, uh, which is a fairly big band in New York City. You know, back then in the late 70s, rock and roll wasn't really, really big. The disco was still happening. Punk was big. You know, and I, I had dreams of becoming a musician in New York with other bands, but I ended up as the first gig I had was a drum tech. You know, and, and, uh, so I just, I, you know, when I, I'm still the same way, but whatever I do, I do the best I can possibly do at it. And, and I learned drums and how to, you know, tuning guitars and, you know, you know, basically a backline guy was how, my first. How'd you get that first gig though? Like, was it through your buddy who was already doing it? And he said, Hey, you well, know, yeah, Charles, my, my friend, Dennis, who, my friend, Dennis Jury, who I went to school with in New York, uh, he, he was working for Falconetti, and he said, "They need an- we need another guy. Oh, I see. And he said, can you get drum tech? And I I knew, I mean, I, I played drums with the band I was in, but I didn't know anything about drums, and I said, sure. So he's, they told me to be at a, a club called Gildersleeves in New York on May the 10th. And I went down there, and, and uh, the guy who was doing the drums at the time set him up for me. And then they, they didn't really let me do anything. They just showed me how to do everything. And then at the end of the night, the, the, the manager said, well, Nothing really changed, so we're not gonna we're not we're not gonna hire you. And I said, well, I said, well, hang on a second. I said, you didn't even give me a chance. Let me, you know, let me come to the rehearsal loft and set the set the stuff up and get used to it. And uh, so they said, okay, they paid me five dollars for my first gig. Oh my god! And uh, so I I went to the rehearsal loft, and um, the drummer had set the drums up. So I learned them 
um, you know, I didn't know how to, I, I didn't know how to mark things. I didn't want to mark anything. So I just sat there and learned how, where they went. And I, I set them up and took them down like 15, 20 times. And, and so I learned it by, uh, by memory. So the wow. first gig we did the next week and I set the kit up, the drummer came up and sat on the kit and said, Oh my God, I don't have to touch anything. And he played and I was hired. And, cool. uh, and it's funny because back then living in New York city, um, there were so many bands playing local bands playing and, there was a lot more musicians and bands than there were roadies, you know, backline guys. So I would, I was suddenly, I mean, like after my first gig, I got another gig and then I got another gig and I worked with a lot of different uh, musicians, you know, who, who became well-known, very famous musicians in different bands. And, and I, I would, I would, I don't know, people would say, could you do this? And I would, I would always say yes. And then I would learn how to do it. That's, I love that uh, attitude though. And that, who is it? I think it's Richard Branson from Virgin who says that, you know, that, that that's how he got successful was basically, he never said no. He always said yes and then figured it out. And, uh, I've had a similar attitude, I guess, in my career. Well, I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. It's a can do attitude and it's, you know, it's, it's not lying out rightly that you can do something. It's knowing that you can figure it out. Uh, yeah. I think that's a talent. You know, it's like I, I was asked if I could tune a Wurlitzer piano, which was an electric piano. I had no clue, and I said yes. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, my God, what have I done? So I found a friend of mine who was an electric you know, Wurlitzer tuner. He said, oh, yeah. He said, it's not easy, but this is how you do it. And he showed me. He opened it up, showed me the solder on the ends of the tines. And fortunately, I never had to tune it. I just had to set it up. But yeah. I learned, you know. A little, and, e- and, um, a little easier today with tuned. YouTube, right? <laughs> no matter oh, what yeah, you want to do, exactly. you go on YouTube. <laughs> You can find anything exactly. Yeah, so it's totally true. So, did you have to be in the union back then, or or not yet? No, no, no. There was a. It was. I mean, it was. It was a great time in New York. It was a. It was the late seventies. It was a. You know, the the, the music industry was. A, you know, I, I think. A, trying to think of the record companies. Arista was brand new, and they were signing smaller bands, and nobody was big. And it's funny the. The band that I'll never forget this because I was working with people that worked with them was the band called The Knack. Yeah, uh, put out an album called Get the Knack, and uh, they had the song on it, My Sharona. And most people don't know this, but My Sharona was the first song that broke the Billboard charts of disco. Uh, it was the first rock song that that that, uh, that came out, oh, and really? uh, so that things really changed rapidly after that. And all these you know bands. I mean, I, I worked for. So many different bands. I mean, it's funny. I worked for a band called Mink DeVille, and, and I had seen them in concert in Orlando in, like, 1978. And a year later, I was working for them, uh, for Willie DeVille. And and uh, it was funny because, you know, I've been very fortunate in my career that the things that I do that I was a newbie at, I never let on that I was a newbie. And people never really asked me. So I, I was always – I was – I never got that, you know, greenhorn kind of thing. I, I always acted and, and tried to be my, be my best as an, as an experienced individual. And, That's awesome. Um, well, know, I mean, if you act like you know so what you're I, doing, I, I think people generally well, believe exactly. you know what you're doing. If you got a clipboard, you can walk anywhere and they think you're well, in charge. You know what? <laughs> the, the analogy for me that comes to mind is uh, uh, I was a huge Happy Days fan. And the funny thing was you never saw Fonzie fight but everyone knew he was really tough, right? Everyone was scared of him and knew that he was the toughest guy around, but he never actually had to fight. So, you know, it's a similar kind of thing. If you just play the role and, and, uh, you know, 
do the work and act the part, people will believe that you're, uh, you know, you're meant to be in that role. Well, exactly. You know, and, and it, it's, I don't know. I, I just think it's this attitude of, of, um, you know, you, you can ask questions, but you don't ask the stupid, silly questions because then it's obvious that you don't know, you don't have the experience. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a listener and I'm a watcher. I've always, you know, I always observe everything going on, you know, to, 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 to make sure I didn't look like a newbie. So, yeah. but you know, in those days, you know, I worked with all these different bands and I got experience really, really quickly. Yeah. And I worked for a lot of different bands every night I was working for different bands and, and, uh, but how did the was, transition great period. from like drum tech and roadie and stuff, how did that transition into specifically lighting? Well, I, I, um, so anyway, I worked in New York until the early eighties and, um, I kind of, I'm trying to, I decided I, I, I could have stayed in New York and lived in New York or I could have come back to Florida. I was kind of faced with a choice. And I love New York City. It's one of my fa- it's my favorite city in the world. It's the best city in the world. It's the greatest city in the world. But the thing about New York is you can't turn it off. It's always on. Yeah. And I thought, well, I could either live in New York where it's always on and go visit Florida because I was born here. You know, I was born in Orlando and, and I love it down here. I said, or I could live in Orlando and come to, to New York. Uh, so I chose the latter and I decided, it, you know, I can come to New York and if I and whenever I want that excitement and stuff. So I came back to Florida. And uh, I'd moved in with my older brother at the time and, and I started working um, kind of like stagehand gigs. I worked for different, different companies that, that built uh, like uh, trade show sets and stuff like that. And uh, they, they did, I worked for this one company, they did uh, uh, theme parties and we would like, we would, they would do theme parties. Of, I was like a carpenter on it and stuff. Right. But um, I, I started and what happened to that is they tried to, they had a contract with the union and I wasn't a union member or anything, but, um, they had a contract with the union and I didn't realize at the time that they weren't using uh, union people when they should have. So I actually had to testify saying that, 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 you know, I, it was a whole, it was a legal thing. So the union kind of saw me and, and said, listen, do you want to become a union? Do you want to come work for the union? And I'm like, sure. You know, I didn't turn down any work. So, I started working for the local in 1983 as a, and we were doing trade shows, you know, boring work like pipe and drape and laying carpet for, you know, big trade shows and conventions. But, uh, here comes Lakeland civic center again. Yeah. Um, and they said, uh, I want to work in Lakeland civic center. And they said, well, you can't cause it's a different local down there. And I said, well, that's, that's a bummer. They said, but listen, you're, we're, if you keep working at it, you'll get your union card and then you can go down and work because you need to be a card holder to work in Lakeland. So, I got my union card in April of 1983 and uh, then they said, okay, you can work in Lakeland now. And the problem with Lakeland is some of the calls, you know, there are four hour calls or two four hour calls and, and you have to wait for the, you do load in and wait. People didn't want to drive all the way down there and wait or drive all the way back. It was, so I was the only one really keen on going to Lakeland all the time. So the, they finally, I finally got a call and here we go. The first concert I worked in 1983 was kiss, you know? Wow. So, um, that's wild. You know, it was a, it, yeah, it, it really, really was a number, number, number one. And number two, the guy who was in charge of the spotlights was a guy named Jesse. Um, and he was the same guy that I saw want, uh, to climb up the ladder to the trust spot at the Kiss show in 1976. Really? And the reason I recognized him is because he had a train conductor hat and he wore overalls. And then I remembered him from 1976. So I started working the Lakeland concerts all the time because they, they I, you know, I worked really hard at it. They knew I was good at it. 
And um, as I said, most of the Orlando guys and gals didn't want to, it was, it wasn't worth it to them, but I had a goal in mind. I wanted to work concerts. Yeah. Um, and what I started doing after that is I started writing my number down and giving it to every roadie that I worked with. But here's how I got into lighting. You'll, you'll, you'll appreciate this. Yep. Um, as you know, first thing, trucks come in, dump rigging and the rigging goes up. Well, I never got the rigging called because I wasn't a ground rigger at the time, you know, um, so I would show up at eight o'clock. The first call would start. And what will you do? You unload the trucks and you push the boxes from the truck to the back of the stage. Then you go back to the truck and you know, it, for me, this is absolutely boring and I wanted to work on the stage. So the first things that go up on the stage, of course, are the lighting trusses and then the dimmers and you run four on and you cable trusses and hang lights. And so it wasn't the, the Lakeland Civic Center really wasn't a departmentalized. I mean, you were, you, you know, you could be, you're just a stagehand, so they could put you on sound lights, set, whatever. So I finally realized after a couple of shows that at some point, the lighting crew chief will say, I need four guys on stage to help me both together trusts, or I need four guys to help me run four odd. So that would be the first people to go to work. So as soon as I saw trusses going up to the stage, I would push my box and kind of hold it and gravitate and wait until the, the crew chief would say, I need four guys on stage. Bam. I would jump up on that stage <laughs> before the crew boss would say anything. That's awesome. And he'd go, wait a second. He'd go, okay, you're already up there. So that's how I started doing lighting because I got tired of pushing boxes from the truck to the stage. Yeah. Oddly. Wow. And, and so, I mean, and but did you know so anything about it? Uh, no, no, no. I, I knew nothing about lighting. I knew nothing about it. I just, you know, I, I just, I, as I said, I always observed and learned. Right. Um, you know, I worked in Orlando. We have a theater in Orlando called, called Bob Carr auditorium. And, and I did shows in there and hung lights and stuff. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, I was familiar with it, you know, power and running cables and stuff like that. I mean, it's fairly straightforward. Yeah. But the first time I yeah. ran trust spot, you know, I, um, uh, I'd never run spot. Um, and they said, we need trust spot operators for Ronnie James Dio for the Dio show. And this is an 84. And I put my hand up and they said, okay, you got to climb this ladder. You know, once again, nobody knew that I hadn't done it before. Mm. So I climbed the ladder first, you know, I'm not afraid of heights. Fortunately, I climbed the ladder. I got up there in my trust spot. And of course, the first thing I did is I got the, the gel frames reversed. And fortunately I had another stage hand, another spot telling me the, uh, the spot frame one is closest to you. And, uh, you know, after that it was great. And, uh, and, uh, and I had, I climbed trust. I started focusing park hands for, for different tours. And I, 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 I would go to the crew chief of the, of the, of the tour and always say, I want to run trust spot. And I was really, really, really good at it, you know? And, and so that, um, that helped a, a lot, you know, because they knew and the, the, the local, uh, you know, the, the steward would always say, yeah, put him on trust spot because he's, he's good and he knows what he's doing. And obviously they wanted to make the, the, the crews happy and the bands happy. Probably part of it too so, was because you were a musician. Like I, I think as a musician, when you know, you know, sort of how the musical signatures are going to go and how a song is yep. sort of pieced together and which guy is going to do the guitar solo versus which guy is going to, you know, whatever, um, you know, it makes perfect sense that you'd be really good at it. Well, that may, that makes sense as well. I mean, you know, and I also I li you know the mostly it's funny all the LDs that were calling trust spots, you know, I learned how they called trust spots, and and now I'm friends with a lot of them, you know, like like Dave Davidi and Howard Ungalider, you know, all the, all these, you know, Paul Dexter. Yeah. And the the one thing that I did is learning learning how to run spots. See, then I started running front of house spot as well. I learned how to run carbon arcs and. 
And I got really good at that and really good at burning carbons down to, to, you know, you making good use of them and never having to go out when I, you know, when I, when I, you know, in a bad, a bad time, you know, in the old carbon arc days. Yeah. But I, the one thing that I took from that time to me being an LD was, was, a uh, running a spot is really, really good, obviously for being able to call it because you know what the, the operators are going through and, you know, and I would get frustrated with some callers because they just sucked and other guys would, you know, enunciate clearly, um, you know, and I, I just, so, so, so having said that, that experience is, is, uh, is of running spots has been so valuable as calling spots. And I've had spotlight operators tell me that the, they're, I'm the best spot caller they've had. But you know what, though, Cosmo? I mean, I think the the pattern I'm seeing here so far in in this conversation, and I love it because, like, I love business leaders who started out in the warehouse, sweeping the warehouse and stocking the shelves and dealing with customer complaints. And then they were in the sales department and they dealt with how do we get our product in customers' hands. And then they moved over to accounting or they moved up to some sort of a management role. For me someone coming out of Harvard and jumping into that role knows nothing. And versus the guy who started in the warehouse when he was 16 years old or 17 years old and worked his way up through the entire system and has heard other people at the water cooler talking about how much of an asshole the boss is or, um, you know, customers complaining about a particular process or whatever, like from the golden tower, you don't hear those things. So the fact that you ran follow spots and you pushed cases, you know, so now I would guess, I'm just going to venture a guess here that you probably treat those stagehands pretty well because you were a stagehand at one point and you know, when a designer was nasty or a, a crew chief was nasty or whoever a production manager was mean to them, you know how that felt, right? Well, yeah, that's a that's a great point, and you know, I've, I'm always, you know, complimentary of, of my light, especially my spotlight operators. You know, I treat them like people. You know, you say as a stagehand, you should think from the neck down, but you you, you, you just can, and you know, I find if you praise people on what they do good, they're going to try to do a better job for you. And, and like yeah. you said, me being in that position, I remember the way I was treated by certain people. Yeah. And uh, I, that, the way it made me happy, I try to treat people that, that same yeah. way. Yeah, well, you remembered the good ones, too. The ones, like, I remember that time when David Davinian, you know, said, a boy to me, and I carried that for a long time, and that made me feel really good, or whatever, right? And I mean, I yeah, do the exactly. same thing with staff. You know, I, I don't see your spot ops or, or stagehands or whatever are no different than, you know, my employees in, in a sense, because they're people that, uh, you know, I can abuse or I can treat them nice and I choose to treat them nice. So, well, I agree. And I've always, I've always, you know, I've always had, even, you know, once I became a crew chief on lighting, the few years I did that, there's a movie, um, that was done in the, I think the fifties, it was called, uh, I think it was Strategic Air Command. It had had Rock Hudson in it, but there was there was a line in the movie I'll never forget, and it was um, he was talking uh, to the, the 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 like the the staff sergeant in yeah. charge of of, of the of maintenance was talking to the base commander, and and everybody was scared of the base commander. You know, they were they feared his wrath, and and uh, and the base and the st- staff sergeant said, you know, let me let me tell you something how I feel about my men. He says. I want to build a fire within their belly, not under their butt. 
Yeah. You know, and I thought how that's that to me stuck and it sticks to, to sticks with me to this day. Yeah. It's, you want to build. I don't want them to fear me. I don't want them to go. Oh, my God. What's Cosmo going to do when he finds out I screwed up? Yeah. I want them to I want them to, 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 to strive to please me because they don't want to let me down. They don't want to disappoint me. That's even you know better than fear. Well, and there's such you a know, difference. There's such a difference to those. Oh, two. yeah. 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 No, I love that. And I love you know, I love that about your story right now. Like you. You never really said, I'm going to walk in and be the LD right from day one. I don't want to move boxes and I don't want to do any of this stuff and I don't want to run cable and hang lights. I just want to go be the LD because that's, you know, the coolest chair in the house. And, you know, yes, that was probably your driving factor was that, you know, I want to be that guy, but I'm willing to put in the work to get there, you know, and it's just a great attitude. It's a great approach. I love it. Well, that, that's part of it. I mean, generally, I've always had a really good work ethic. And I, I just, I mean, you know, I mean, I, can't, I don't know when the transition or the realization that I, from being a rock star to just being in the business, um, you know, I just, I tried to excel at anything I did. Yeah. Or I, and I still try to excel at everything I do. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's just something within me. I want to be the best at whatever I can do, you know, and, yeah. and, uh, yeah, you know that's when I, what 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 happened when I started working for these. A lot of the same guys would come through, and I got to know them. And there was a guy named Gordy Barden, who worked with a, a company called TTR. Um, and I, I and what I would do is I would give, like I said, I didn't have business cards. I just wrote my name and number down. And you know, I'm sure they they put went in the trash. And you know, I found out about LSD, and I actually sent Tim Merch uh, and my uh, uh, what do you call it an application. Yeah, you know, to, to, and I never heard anything back. And Tim, I, you know, years later, I saw Tim, and he says, "Yeah, we probably still got your application in some file somewhere." <laughs> but um, you know, so w- what had happened is, as I worked several years, and I, and I, you know, I I did other stuff as well. I worked for like local bands and toured Florida, um, you know, and I, which I did in New York. I worked for bands in New York and toured the Northeast, and you know, so I garnered a lot of experience just about touring, you know, on, on a much smaller scale, obviously. Yeah. Um, and then I started working and especially in the, in the, in the, when I started working as a stagehand in 1983, that's when, you know, the, the, the big tour started coming out and, uh, everybody was playing Lakeland, you know, I mean, I was working so many shows a year, plus they started playing in Orlando. We had a new convention center at the time. And, and uh, so I was working concerts all the time and, and, uh, I almost lived in, at Lakeland Civic Center because we did the Miss USA pageant there three years in a row. Right. Um, and then it was back to back shows and it seemed so, like too, in the nineties, like in the early nineties, I seem to remember a lot of bands starting to do, uh, rehearsals in Lakeland as well. Yeah, that, yeah, that started because it was a, you know, it was, um, it was a smaller arena and they were building, you know, newer and bigger ones around the country and, and Lakeland, I mean, Lake Civic Center is still there. Yeah. It still gets, uh, it doesn't get many rock shows anymore, but they have a lot of, lot, you know, cause it's not big enough. I, I want well, probably going to come back with the smaller bands, but. Uh, you know, there's so many arenas now around, the, you know, the state of Florida and the central yeah, Florida particularly. Yeah, a lot of places to play. Um, but, yeah, a lot of bands did rehearsals there. Rush started every tour there because they were big baseball fanatics, or, or uh, uh, Getty Lee was. He was a big And the Detroit Tigers started spring training yeah. uh, in Lakeland. So right. they would always come down and, and start their tours there. So that was, that was always good for, a, you know, a good few days of work. And uh, they always did two to three shows when they started there. It was, uh, it was great. Um, but you know, I worked for smaller bands and touring, as I said, touring the state of Florida, and that was a, that was just really good experience, you know. And I was yeah. running sound for those those bands. I was a sound guy then, um, 
But the you know one finally in uh, 1986. I had a work with Gordy Barden, and I, I, he'd finally give me the number to a guy named a guy named Richard Hartman, who was the owner of TTR Lighting, and uh, so I called him, you know, and I bothered him every week, and uh, I, I figured either he'd get sick of me and tell me to stop calling, or he'd finally give me a job. And fortunately, he didn't get sick of me. He he finally gave me a job. But <laughs> now this is the story, and this is this is how. See, I really believe in the universe, and I believe in gratitude, and I believe in you know positive the power of positive thought, as they say. Yep. But the the way I got my first gig is is uh, unbelievable. I mean the the way the 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 planets align, the stars align, whatever you ca- want to call it. But when I tell you the story, your mouth will drop open because <laughs> I had um I was living in a mobile home with my wife back then, and we were we decided we wanted to buy a house. So I, and a friend of mine wanted to buy the mobile home, so we sold the mobile home. And we found a house we liked, and we put a we put a a, a bid in on it. Um, so at the time, I had to move in with my brother and brother-in-law, and my wife's basically sister and her husband. So we moved in there and and waiting awaiting the house. So meanwhile, I'm calling Richard Hartman every week. So I lost my phone number in my first home, and I had to give him the new number where I was with my brother-in-law. Um, I'm sorry, this is going to be a little bit of a long no, story. No, no, it's good. Sense. It's good. So anyway, so um, what, so basically at this time, this was probably, oh, let me think. This was in June of 1986, and uh, we were waiting for the approval of this house. And uh, my, my brother-in-law at the time, let's say he just, he was a late sleeper. He didn't really answer the phone. Um, so basically what had happened is we, the, the house, we didn't get the house. We didn't get it. It wasn't a long story. We didn't get the house, um, for varying reasons, which was a good thing. Um, so at that time I said, oh, we got to get out of here. So it was like, a a, on a Thursday, we went and found an apartment, put a deposit down and and, uh, I moved on Friday, you know, went and had the the electric turned on the phone turned on. Well, the phone company says, okay, uh, we'll have your phone on Monday morning. Uh, or Monday, some point, you know, you know how they, especially yeah. back then, yeah. you know, sometime during the day. So we, we, and I left the number to the, my new number with my brother-in-law, who, as I said, was, was not Mr. Reliable when it came to that kind of thing. So we moved from his, his house to the, to our apartment. And this was, we spent the weekend and, you know, and I wasn't expecting anything or calls or anything, but you never know. That's why I just gave him the number. So come Monday morning, the car I had needed a new muffler. So I decided to drive up to the nearest Midas muffler shop, which was a couple of miles from my new apartment. Um, my wife knew I was going. And um, so I was sitting there waiting for the car. And then the the um, uh, owner, the, the guy at the desk came, the phone rang. He answered and then he came over and he said, he said, are you uh, Charlie Wilson? That's my real name. He said, are you Charlie Wilson? I said, yeah, why? He says, it's, uh, it's your wife on the phone. I thought, well, this is odd, you know. Um, and remember, this is the day before cell phones, yeah. way before cell phones. So I, so I get and she says, honey, um, Richard Hartman's called you. I said, what? She said, you need to call Richard Hartman. He's called you about a gig, about a, about a tour. And I'm like, I was blown away. So I, I, he, she gave me the number, and I asked the guy that owned the Midas Muffler Shop. I had an AT&T card at the time, so I could, you know, charge the call to that. So I called Richard, and he said, can you be in Chicago tomorrow morning? And I'm like, what? He said, the cure, two of the guys got got stuck at the border, so we need guys immediately. 
He said they're in uh, Detroit or somewhere today, and, and tomorrow they're going to be in Chicago. So I was like, of course. And he said, you need to call a guy named Chris Adamson. Well, Chris Adamson was in England. Fortunately, my card let me do that. Chris Adamson, I, I, I knew who he was, you know, from, from Pink Floyd. I knew who he was in the business. And yeah. I was like, wow, Chris Adamson. Yeah. So I called Chris, and he said, yeah, we need, a, we need a, two guys, and you're one of them. He told me the thing, gave me the wage, how much I was going to make and stuff like that. Uh, they booked me a flight, and then I went home just completely on – you know, walking on air, elated, just blown away, shocked, everything. And, and, uh, but the things that lined up is first of all, that they called my brother, my number with my brother-in-law and that he actually answered the phone in the morning, Yeah, which is unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Then he had the wherewithal to know where the, my new number was and call it and say, Richard Hartman called. And then my phone of course, the unreliable phone companies back then, what if my phone had been turned off? It hadn't yeah. been turned on yet. Yeah. Fortunately, my phone had probably been on minutes, and she answered the phone, and and then calling the Midas muffler shot. You know what I mean? Just the, the, yeah, just all these, those these pieces odds. coming together like that is just not going to happen very often, right? No, that's, exactly. That's really I mean, every, there were so many things that have gone wrong. Be. Yeah, meant to be. But you know what, though? I mean, again, the good part of the story, like I, I, you know, it's almost like you're teaching lessons here because you kept calling the guy. And so when it came time that he needed somebody, he went, oh, yeah, this guy, Charles, who's calling me like every three days asking for a gig. Maybe I'll try him. You know what I mean? Like, Well, that's exactly looking you, back. And, and, you know, like, like looking back, that's is, is I, you know, there's a time when you're annoying or there's a time when you're just reminding. And the fact you, you were 100% right is I was fresh on his mind when he needed two yeah. guys. He said, I'm going to call Charlie because he's been calling me. Yeah, you put yourself in that position. And, uh, you know, if it was just a stack of resumes, what's the chance that you're going to be on top of that stack? But no, you were the guy that was constantly calling him. And he's like, you know what? This guy's on my nerves. This will save me from getting the call from him every three days or whatever. I'm going to actually put him out on a gig and, and try the guy. If he's trying this hard, there's got to be something there. And because I know me as a business owner, again, I love when people are that uh, just, you know, uh, on it. Like they're, they're, like you said, to a point of almost being annoying. Well, exactly. I mean, it's keen, you know, yeah. that's, I love that English term, very keen. And I yeah. was super keen. And so what and, was your uh, position you know, so on that tour? Well, what did see, this is, well, this is another thing going back to my work ethic. So, Two of the guys, what had happened is they didn't have work visas. They were British. They didn't have work visas. It was, it was the Cure Tour. It was uh, yeah. Standing on the Beach Tour in 1986. Um, and I flew to Chicago, and I was really nervous about it. And, you know, nobody was there to pick me up at the airport, so I had to take a taxi from, uh, from O'Hare all the way out to Poplar Creek, you know, and that was an expensive. And fortunately, they were there waiting. You know, I had to have enough money. I mean, you know, money was scarce, and yeah. things were expensive. So I get there, and essentially what had happened is two of the English guys, had they had played Toronto, and they didn't have a work visa for the U.S., so they were coming in as tourists, but stupidly, they had in their bags, they had plots and gels and, and tools, and so they were obviously working. Yeah. So the U.S. authorities, customs would not let them in, or immigration said, no, you got to stay in Canada, because at least they were British. They were on their own territory. So they couldn't get them in, so that was it. They had to get somebody immediately. So they called me and another guy, um, to come in to, to, to come to do this. And, you know, I'd worked enough with lighting that I knew how to get trusses up and there was nobody there. There was no crew. There was no, there was only two lighting guys on the crew and the wow. LD and the LD was a, 
uh, Angus McPhail, Mac, and he was an LD, a white glove LD. He didn't go in and do anything, you know, um, and nothing against him. I mean, he's a great guy and everything, but that he didn't, he was the type of LD that didn't, it wasn't a hands-on LD. Right. So I got the rig up. I mean, we had a rigger, you know, so he knew that stuff. And, you know, I, I knew how to get the park hands down and pre-focus them. And, and uh, then, Ang- then Mac would come on stage and, and focus. So I climbed up and focused the lights, you know, the first time with them. And, and I learned the rig really quickly, and I just kind of took over as crew chief. That is wild. And uh, then, uh, like, a couple of days later, an English guy came in, a guy named Anais McIntosh, and he was going to be the crew chief. And he said, listen, you already know what the hell you're doing. You might as well continue doing it. So for that first gig, I, I ended up being in charge of the, all the lights and getting them up, and I worked my butt off. And I got such rave reviews from, from, the, from the band and the and the LD and other people that they, uh, Richard Harmon decided immediately to put me on Genesis. I mean, I knew Genesis was coming up and I was vying for that gig and I got the cure first. So I went straight from that gig to Genesis and and, uh, and that was a life changer as well. Wow. Yeah. I mean, Genesis being your second gig as a lighting guy, really, right? Uh, You know, your second. Well, especially, and that was when they had the brand new very lights, you know, And, and I was working for TR. So, my first gig had nothing to do with lights because Verilite took care of the lights. We took care of the trussing, cabling, uh, motor management systems, yeah. uh, smoke machines, all that kind of stuff. So it was it was incredible, and and uh, and that's a, you know I, I'm sure that'll you'll say how did you get the name Cosmo and and um, I was going to get that to story it. now. I was going to get to it. Well, you I can wait or we can carry on. No, it's, no, it's no. I mean, I, you were born Charles, right, Charlie? And, yeah, right, yeah. Uh, Charles, Charles, and. It's so, funny if I named myself Charlie when I changed schools because they said this, we have a new student, Charles Wilson. Yeah. Do you have a nickname? And I said, Charlie, because I didn't really like Charles, <laughs> funny enough. But, uh, so, yeah. well, in, in 1983 and 84, I worked, as I said, the Miss USA pageants, uh, 80, 83, 84, 85. And there was a carpenter, and he would he would um, give people nicknames on the your local crew. And he, uh, I'm not going to make the long story, but he started calling me, uh, first he called me Rasputin, and then he called me Cosmo Brown. And then one of the stagehands, it was one of my best friends that I worked with, called and started calling me Cosmo. So they was kind of like a joking name every so often. And, so you, you, know, you could be Rasputin Gen- right now, though. I'm glad, I'm glad Cosmo well, that's very stuck, true. right? Yeah, Cosmo yeah, <laughs> is much better than Rasputin. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Essentially, I mean, I'll tell the long story because it's a little interesting. He said he had three plateaus of stagehands that worked really well with him. And, and I'd reached the first one, and that's when he called me Rasputin. And then the second one was Cosmo. And he says, eventually you'll, you'll, work the third, you'll reach the third plateau. And he, he said, when you reach that plateau, this is what I'm going to call you. He says, so, but, you know, the day, you know, so wait and just work hard. So I worked hard for him. And then finally he said to me, okay, you've reached the third plateau. And I said, awesome. He says, you have to do one more thing for me. And I said, what's that? And he said, tell me the name I told you a week ago. And I couldn't remember it. So right. he said, all right, well, then you're forever Cosmo. So, but it, it, that's where that started. Do you so remember now what that name was? What the no, third name no, was? No, I never remember. Oh, okay. I can't remember. Yeah. And the guy, Joe, I, I've lost touch with the, the stagehand. He would probably forget. I mean, you know, this is 1980. Of course, yeah. Four or eight, five. Yeah. I mean, it's been a while now, but yeah. it's, uh, yeah. it's, uh, I can't, I can't remember. But so when I go on with Genesis, the, the, there's a guy named Charlie Boxall who is the, he's the rigger and basically crew chief for the lighting. And uh, so Morris Lida, our production manager, said, okay, we can't have two Charlies on the lighting crew. And since you're the, you know, the third man on the lighting crew, I think I was, I was you know, there was like six crew members, five or six guys on the lighting crew. But he said, either you're going to come up with a nickname, you're going to give us a nickname or we're going to come up with one for you. And I'm like, 
okay, well, I don't want to be called something like sperm head or something. <laughs> so I said Cosmo, and they said, all right, Cosmo it is. And it's funny because I brought this up to Morris Leiden a, a few years ago, and he said, I don't even remember that, but, you know. That's hilarious. That's where it all started. And, and uh, so Cosmo ever since, and that, and that was 86. Sperm head would be bad. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, there's there's other guys got you know other there's a, you know you've you've heard some bad names on on the road and that's just yeah. no I I think I'll, yeah. Cosmo's good so. Well, uh, uh, what's his name? James uh, Poop. You know that that's one yeah. of the that's one of the funnier ones that I know. Like I you know someday somebody should create a list of funny road names because uh, Poop is right up there. Well, exactly. And like you said, it's very hard for girls to say, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's funny. That's a great story. That's really cool. So Genesis, I mean, how do you top that? That's, that's a pretty tough one. Well, I mean, that, that's the thing. And, you know, I, I, um, I learned a lot. Once again, I, you know, I learned a lot. It was kind of neat being on a tour that was no lights. I mean, um, I learned to climb trust. Am I actually, my nickname on that tour became the gazelle of the trust because I would, you know, it was back in the day before safety harnesses and safety lines, and you know, I I would jump from truss to truss because it was a it was a multiple moving you know Genesis. It was a multiple yeah. moving truss with you know with pods and stuff, and and uh, I mean I I I loved climbing trusses, and I had no problem with heights, and you know we'd have to go up to the mother grid because we had smoke machines up there, and and uh, so you know I I, I um, it was great, you know, and and uh, so. You know, at the time, Genesis was one of the biggest tours on the road that, that year. That's when MTV was really big, and we flew the Concorde from uh, New York to Paris. Wow, and, that's cool. You know, it was an incredible tour, and, and um, you know, right after that, I left Genesis and went straight to Back to the Cure, um, and that was the Kiss Me Tour, and that was the biggest tour. Uh, that was in 1987, you know, and, and then... Um, after, after that, I did some stints with Barbara Mandrell, which was interesting because it was a country act and a smaller tour, and, and I was a crew chief for that for a while. And we, we did some shows. It was my first venture into residencies because she was doing residencies at Bally's in, in Vegas, and that was interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I, uh, Larry Sizemore was the LD for a while, so I learned a lot from him. And uh, who else is out there? Um, so when you say you learned a lot, like were you already shadowing the – designer and director trying to figure out whatever you could figure out? Like, were you, were you? Well, I, I wasn't, I wasn't, um, consciously shadowing. I, I would just, I just, I, there's people that kind of see everything around them and, and take it in and observe. Well, like I said before, observe, I'm very observant of what's going on around me. And I, I never, I'm trying to, I don't know when I ever had asper, aspirations of running lights. Yeah. You know, I saw shows and I saw, I'm like, when I first saw the cure, I was the, the amount of smoke because because Mac used a lot of smoke. I was blown away how the smoke, you know, looking back, it was so much surreal, you know, because you don't normally see smoke in your life. You know, you, you see fog, and you, even when you saw fog the first time when you're young, it's like eerie. Yeah. Just to see that much smoke, I was it was amazing the effect and stuff, and and um, so I, I was mesmerized by that. So I was, you know, in, in the strobes. I've always been a when I was a young kid, we went to an observatory in New York, and, and they had a they showed us what strobes do, and I was blown away how cool strobes look on a human body. You know that makes you look like you're moving, you know, like a robot. And so I've always been interested in that thing. But you know, watching the shows, I was I was a, 
interested in seeing how the LDs, I mean, Larry Sizemore did this thing where he had Barbara Mandrill on the stage and he had all the lights were in like a Congo, except for like two lights that were on Barbara and they were in this amber. And it was the most, it was the most amazing thing I saw, how simple that was, you know? So I picked up things and obviously I was interested in lighting because I was working in it. Yeah. But, um, I, uh, you know, the, the uh, Genesis, I would, uh, run spotlight for the opening act, um, because we were doing uh, a lot of stadiums. And so I was always running spotlight and I was really good at it because of my, my experience in Lakeland civic center and, and running carbons and, you know, it was extra money. So I, that's the first thing I did is ran spotlight for, for the, especially the European shows for the opening act for Paul Young. We had different, different acts, but, um, after Byron and drill, um, I, uh, I, we did George Michael, the Faith Tour, which is a big thing, and we were in rehearsal for weeks in the at, at, uh, in Hollywood uh, at Universal Studios. Um, and uh, then I got this is the first big thing that happened is I went out with In Excess on the Kick Tour, and that was in 1988. Okay. And um, the reason that this is this is a career changing thing for me because this is the first kind of tour that I did where we had an opening act, or we had two opening acts uh, at times. Um, but but we had uh, we had I'm trying to think we had um we we had Steel Pulse open for us we had um, Ziggy Marley open for us and we had um, uh, Public Image you know Johnny Thunder Johnny uh, Thunder Johnny Lydon opened up for us and and at the time the crew the world crew chief I was the American crew chief the world crew chief was a guy named Peter Pete Jennings uh, he was Irish and uh, he was running some of the opening acts and then when Steel Pulse came on they they asked me if I wanted to run it, and I was like hell yeah. So that was my first, you know, I played with lights, obviously. Ran the, I knew how to run a console, AVOs or cell codes. So um, he showed me what I could use. And so I ran lights for, uh, um, uh, 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 sorry, Steel Pulse. And I learned to call spots, as I said, from running them. So it was fantastic. That was my first foray into actually operating lights, being, an, being a lighting director. And, um, and it's, oddly enough, as uh, I am... Um, Guns N' Roses was getting big, and they were going to open up for in excess in, uh, in uh, Dallas at the stadium. And so I contacted, uh, uh, I have to go back, his, his, um, his, the manager of Guns N' Roses at the time, um, Doug, Doug Goldstein. I contacted Doug. I'd known him before. I'd met him before, and I said, listen, can, can, I, do you need, can I run lights? Can I, you know, I want to be the LD for the band. Yeah. And he said, well, you can run lights for this show. So. I ran lights for that show. Of course, it was mostly in daylight, and it went for 45 minutes until Axel kicked the monitors off the stage and walked off. So <laughs> that, that, you know, and, it, and you know, I, I wanted to get the gig, but I didn't get it. Phil Ely got it. I didn't have enough experience back then, you know. Yeah. So and Phil had, had more experience. So and, and then I, you know, I did another Barbara Mandrell tour, and then I, another another one that really the Crowded House was such. You know, I worked with them. We went out in '89, uh, and we did this crazy tour starting in the. Northeast in the middle of winter and worked our way across Canada in the middle of winter. It was brutal, but so much fun. And the band was such a joy to work with. And, uh, Steve, Steven Swift, Swifty was the LD and he was another guy that I learned so much from. Yeah. And Roger McGuinn from the birds was the opening act. And he was just there with an acoustic guitar and I ran lights with him and called spots on him. It was nothing. He was just, he was a one guy. It was not a big deal. You know, I just did different looks for each song. But then one night we were doing a show in a small club in Toronto and the, the band crowded house decided to do a, a set with, um, Roger McGuinn, a bird set, you know, all, all his songs, they learned them. So they came on stage and Swifty said, 
Cosmo, if you want to run lights for the, for the, so I said, well, this is your band. He says, nope, you're going to do it. So he let me run lights for, for, and it was, I cannot tell you to this day, it's such an exciting experience for me running that show, um, with, with, with the playing, you know, with Roger McGuinn and crowded That's house wild. playing bird songs. It was do so you, Do you incredible. remember, uh, was it the Elma combo? What club was it? Do you remember? Uh, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, I'm now that I, let's go back. It wasn't Toronto. There was another thing happened in Toronto. They had, they, they went to do a music awards and, uh, we, I, anyway, we, it was Portland. It was, it's a starry night. Oh, okay. It was a starry night in Portland. And what had happened is they had to cancel a gig. And for some reason they decided to play this gig. And another thing that happened that gig is after the show, they came and paid everybody. They took the money and instead of, instead of, they got paid in cash, so they split it between everybody on the crew and band, and we each got 300 Canadian. Oh, must have, see, this is weird. This is I'm trying to think. Anyway, that's, that's another experience with Crowd House. They they took the money and split it between everybody. We all got 300 Canadian dollars. That is so. But cool. um, who does that, right? No, yeah, exactly, exactly. That is and they so came cool. out. They were so. Neil Finn was so happy. He had this the paper bag full of Canadian dollars, and he's just divvying it out to everybody that's on the really, bus. Really, really cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I want to go back a second, Cosmo. So the, the gig where you ran uh, Steel Pulse, and so basically your first, your first shot at the desk, right? How, how would you grade that uh, performance by yourself? How was the lighting that night for Steel Pulse? Um, honestly, I, I don't remember. Um, I, um, nobody yelled at you though, right? Nobody yelled at me. I mean, the, I mean, the opening, you know, it's the opening act. They didn't, they didn't really care and they were lit when they needed to be and they were not lit when they didn't need to be. And, and I'll tell you one of, one of my, there was a song they did where the, 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 the keyboardist who was singing this particular song, he, the song stopped and he sang this thing to kind of go out. He had this one line. So, and I'll never forget this moment because, you know, it's hitting the cues. And that's when I learned how yeah. important it is hitting the cues. Yeah. And so what I did is I had his spot stay on. I blacked everything else out and the other spots out. And I left his on until he sang it. And then I blacked it out when he was done. And I was so damn proud of myself. Oh, you hit the moment hit perfectly. I, yeah. I nailed it. I mean, it was just him lit up with the spotlight singing it. And then he, he stopped and the light went out. And it was, that you know, cool. nobody said to me, oh, that was great. But to me. Yeah. That for me was I a moment it. of my life going, wow, yeah. this is great. You know, cool. you're learning the art of light and That's cues really cool. and timing. Yeah. And, you know, I've always said you can screw up as long as you screw up in time. Yeah. You yeah. know? Yeah. Very cool. So then, right. uh, somehow you ended up, uh, I think in 89, something big, right? Well, that's, yeah, well, this is the thing, you know, I did the crowded house tour and, and, um, in uh, in May of '89, we finished, and I had just uh, purchased a house. Um, you know, I lived in this apartment for for uh, three years, and then uh, I, I decided to buy a house. And so I had finished crowded house, and I was home, and and I was actually moving from my apartment to my new house. And I got a call from from the shop from TTR saying, Cosmo, we got a gig. If you want it, and I said, Okay, what is it? And they said it's an LD gig, and I was like wow, I was just, you know, I was thrilled. It was an LD gig. And they, I said, who for? And they said, uh, um, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, he's a director. And I was like, oh, this is incredible. This is awesome. Because Stevie Ray Vaughan was everything then. And it was, yeah. you know, and it was, so 
he's, I said, when does it start? He says, well, you got to fly here tomorrow. And I'm like, Oh, I can't. I said, I'm moving. I said, I'm just started moving today, you know, and moving into the new house. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, how am I going to be able to do this? I said, let me call you back. And, you know, I talked to my wife at the time and I said, uh, I said, and I'm thinking about, it. I said, I can't, I can't do this because I'm going to be gone. I need to finish moving. You know what I mean? We, yeah, it was just literally moving. It was so flipping like your life upside so I called down them back. a bit too much. Right. And here I had this passing up this opportunity, you know, yeah. to, to, to run life through Steve Ravon. And, and, uh, so I called, uh, uh, Bob back and I said, listen, I, 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 I can't, I, I got to move. And he said, Oh, that's okay. He says, we need a crew chief on the stones next month. So he says, I had you penciled in for that anyway. So I was like, okay, great. Oh, so, Jesus. um, you know, and, and you know, I, here's the thing, I, you know, I don't know how, what this, this happened, but it makes me think of how fate works. You know, um, it's incredible. We'll talk about one part of the fate with the stones, but the one fate with Steve Ravon, I mean, I'm a huge airplane fanatic. I love airplanes and helicopters and flying you know, and I try to get rides anytime I can, anywhere I can. And I think back, I look what happened, you know, obviously, you know, um, not, not much to after that when Steve Rivon was in a helicopter and yeah. crashed. Yeah. I yeah. could have very well, yeah. as an lighting director said, he could have said, Cosmo, why don't you come fly with me? And we'll, you know what I mean? Who knows? Yeah, that's Who knows? crazy, man. You know, it was highly unlikely that I'd been in the helicopter, but you never know. He said, why don't you come with, with us? We'll drop, you can drop us off and he'll fly you back. You know what I mean? Because I've flown in helicopters all the time. So that's crazy. So that's what I always think that's is crazy. that that fate could have changed. But, you know, fast forward to, like you said, 1989. So anyway, I, I, um, I go to Dallas to start putting together the stones. And what they said is well, there's two systems. There's the red system and the blue systems, and they're going to leapfrog. And uh, we need crew chief on each system, and you're going to be on the red system, and a guy, uh, another guy's going to be on the, the blue system. So um, we went out. We did our first. We did rehearsals in the in the, actually in Long Island at, at, um, um, at what's the name of the arena there. We did rehearsals in an arena with an outdoor stage. We just set it up in the band rehearsed. Um, it's where the it's where the Islanders play. Um, what's the name of the or arena? Or where they used to play, right? So they, they don't play there anymore. Yeah, where they used. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, where they used to play. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, I, I so that's it. where we started rehearsals. Then we went to Philly, and we we set up back when that was back when um, JFK Stadium was there, and and we we set up the Red System in Veterans Stadium, and the Blue System was over in at JFK Stadium. Uh, that way we could compare notes, and 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 the band. The first show was actually in Vet Stadium, so um, we did weeks of rehearsals, um, and uh, so I was crew chief. And it was great. I mean, it was, uh, we, you know, we didn't do any overnighters. Basically, you know, we would we would do our show and then the band would fly to another city and we would go to the, the Leapfrog City. And I, you know, I, uh, I, I was the crew chief and um, uh, Steve Nolan was the crew chief for the other system. And Patrick Woodruff was the overall designer. Um, and uh, Sean Richardson was the uh, LD. You know, they obviously went to every show and I went to every other show. So what started happening is the show was about three hours long and Sean would, um, you know, run the show and it was, there was, it was a Dave Hill running the, the very lights and, and Sean was on the, uh, the, the Selco and, you know, I was already running lights for opening acts and, and enjoying it. So what he would have to do is, is he would have to get up to pee sometimes during the show and he would have me sit down and, and run a song, um, and I think at the time I didn't realize, but both Patrick Woodruff and Sean Richardson saw talent within me. And um, so, you know, looking back, I, I was kind of a dumbass because, you know, Sean would get up for extended periods of time and let me run, you know, more than the, the time it would go take to go pee. 
Yeah. So I, I was running more and more songs and really, really enjoying it. I mean, I didn't even, it's stupid. I didn't even think in the back of my head, I'm running Lights for the Stones. It was, yeah. you know, so, you know, looking back, you know, hindsight, I mean, I, I, you know, moving forward. So we, um, we finished the U.S. tour and we're getting ready to go to Japan. We get to Japan and, and Patrick says, listen, Sean Richardson's not coming. Um, he's going to uh, go do Tina Turner for me. Okay. And I said, well, who's going to run lights? He says, well, I, I know the show. I'm going to run it. So Patrick, I thought they were going to get Steve Nolan to do it, but Steve Nolan wasn't, you know, he, I don't know. I don't think he wanted to be an LD, but so we get to Japan. So the, the, we get ready for the first night and Patrick said, listen, I don't know the whole show. Do you mind running some of it? I know you know some of it. I said, sure. So the first night I ran like half the show and Patrick took over and ran some of it. Uh, the second show I ran more of it and Patrick didn't do much of it. And I think the third show, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was a 1990. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was actually my, uh, 29th birthday. Um, he said, listen, do you, I've got a proposition. I said, what's that? He says, I want you to take over lights. I said, what? He said, I want you to take over running lights for the rest of the tour, Japan, Europe, and you know, any other dates we do. And I'm like, I was shocked, you know, and of course I said, let me think about that for a millisecond. I said, of course, I would love to. Yeah. So I took over yeah. and started running the show myself and, and I, and I, and Patrick was there the whole time and I would start adding things and he loved it. He was, so I, you know, once I once again, I wanted to say this before, but I'll say it now. Hindsight being 2020, I realized that both him and Sean Richardson were grooming me. They, fortunately I had these guys see the talent within me yeah. and pull it out of me and put me in a position to, uh, what an incredible so, opportunity. I mean, yeah. That is unbelievable. You know, like learning on the stones, basically, right? <laughs> That's unreal. Well, I mean, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's like, here I, you know, then it hit, then it, you know, sunk in. I'm running lights for the Rolling Stones. Yeah. You know, it was, it was unbelievable. It was such a, it was a dream come true. And I mean, I've, I've always been, I've always been a person of gratitude. I mean, I, I don't know why. I mean, maybe I read it in a book, but I just, it just, I always thank the universe for everything in my life, you know, and it, and I, it, to this day, I do that. It's, 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 you have to, you have to be gra gracious and thankful for, for what you have and what you want and stuff. And, yeah. and I was always that way. And I just watched my life unfold in an unbelievable, you know, to the team to this day, I'm in awe of, of, you know, what happened in my life and the things I get to do. Well, and, you know, the, you know, and the funny thing is, and I've, I've always been similar and I'm not a religious guy, but whether you say a prayer or you're saying your goals or you're saying whatever, um, to me, the successful people always thank, whether it's God or thank the universe or thank, you know, whoever for the things that they have. And, Sometimes the less than successful people are always asking for something. They're asking for more. So when they're praying, they're saying, please, can I have this? Please, can you solve this problem? Please, can you help me over here? Uh, as opposed to, you know, just thank you for all of the great things you did for me today. And Well, that's, that's 100%. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. You know, and I also, I, I, the thing is, is I learned as well that it, 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 there's, there's nothing wrong with asking for th new things but you've got to appreciate and be gracious for what you have now. That to me is the important thing. It's, it's people who bitch and complain about what their life now and oh, I need this. I want this. It needs to be better. You're going to stay stagnant in that position because you're not being thankful for what you have. Even if it's a bad thing, you got to look at the good things of it. So that's kind of been my mantra for, for a very long yeah, time to be, be thankful for what I have yeah. now. And that helps me get to what I want. 
Yeah. You know, or I what I strive for. You know, and it's just, you know, for me, I mean, after the stones, you know, towards the end of the stones, Patrick would have said, listen, I've got something that you might want to do after this tour, another, another band. And I said, okay, who's that? And he said, would you like to do ACDC for me? And I was like, you know, once again, another millisecond of thought, of course, you know, it was a, it was a, you know, it's a dream come true for me. And, you know, getting back a minute to what happened in the stones, I was a TTR had been bought out by a company called Samuelson's. Yep. Um, which is a big lighting company, you know, big, huge British lighting company. Um, and during that time period, another company bought the, the, the bought part of Samuelson, uh, you know, the lighting division. And they, they were an investment company and they went, they didn't want them. So they just kind of, they shut them down. And I was so fortunate because I went from crew chief to LD for the stones about the same time that, um, they went on a business. So if I hadn't gotten an LD, I would have been out of work. I would have had to find a lighting crew job with another company, Yeah, which probably would have happened. I mean, I think, you know, gives them my work ethic and everything, but you know, the timing was perfect that I became an LD and, and started being paid by the bands instead of the lighting companies. Yeah. Well, and, the, and the thing and is some the, people, some people would probably say that, you know, you've had a very lucky career and all of those types of things. But again, I mean, going back to the karma, uh, side of everything, I, I've always believed that you create your luck, you know, hard work, uh, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Right. And that seems to have followed you in your career. Well, I mean, you, you, you're right. I mean, you know, as I said, you know, there's so many things about luck, you know, hard yep. work, you know, and it's, it's, I've always said it's a combination of things, of you know, it it's, yep. it's, uh, you know, you make your own luck. You know, but it's, you know, like I said, the, the, the whole point with, you know, the, with me and the being at the Midas Muffler shop, you know, had nothing, it had to do with hard work because I got a call, but the fact of the timing had nothing to do with anything I could have done. It was completely yeah. out of my control. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So the Stones, when so, was that? That was 1990, right? Or I'm, uh, I'm sorry, ACDC. And ACDC. ACDC started in 1990. That was, um, wait, so that was 30 years ago now. Jesus. Um, that was the razor's edge tour, which was like, a, I think they hadn't toured since 88. It was the longest they hadn't toured in a while. So it was like, it's funny, two years, two years they didn't tour. And it was like, you know, nobody heard you know, what happened to ACDC. They're, you know, they're off the, yeah. they've disappeared off the face of the planet. And so razor's edge came out, the album was a huge success. And, and we started this big tour and we did monsters of rock and, and it was a great experience for me because it was, you know, I sat down with Patrick Woodruff and, and co-designed it. You know, I, I, uh, we had inflatables on the Rolling Stones and, and, and I came up with the idea of the inflatable Rosie, you know, which is, uh, wow. you know, for me, uh, my career, because I look back, you know, it just seemed to me that, you know, that we had an, we had a, like an inflatable Angus head. Yeah. And uh, I said to Patrick, I said, you know, he didn't know the songs as well as I did. I said, we need a big fat Rosie, you know, cause we had girls on the stones that they weren't fat. They were, yeah. you know, beautiful, hot girls on the stones that we had. So you came you know, up with so that. They I, loved it. I saw that tour. I remember <laughs> yeah. the, I remember the fat Rosie. Yeah, that was the first one. And we've had one ever since, you That's know, and it's, it's such a, such a great, you know, it, it's a, uh, but it made sense. I mean, it's, it's, I'm surprised Patrick didn't come up with it, but I said, I, th I think the only reason Patrick didn't come up with it is because he wasn't as familiar with the songs as I was. Yeah. Yeah, you were a fan. You so, started from the standpoint or the viewpoint of a fan, right? Well, that's the thing. I know the music, and you know, and and I like the music. I'm very so fortunate to work with bands that I I love their music. I mean, you know, it's I've been. Is it by choice? I mean, 
it's not like I asked to work for ACDC. I mean, some bands I do. But, I mean, I've been very fortunate to get bands that I loved. I mean, I, I wasn't a huge fan of Genesis until I worked with them. But, you know, that was because of Crew Guy. But as far as operating and, you know, designing and, and directing shows, I've worked with my favorite bands, you know, bands that yeah. I love. And, uh, you know, knowing the music is 90% of it. Yeah. Well, and you, know? you must have done something well on, on the Stones, you know, for, for Patrick to bring you right back right after that to do ACDC as a, you know, co-design director, etc. cetera. Um, so, you know, again, gratitude paid forward, right? Well, exactly. I mean, you know, it's just, uh, as I said, I didn't, throughout my life with, with my career and just my life in general, I've, I mean, I, yeah, of course I have dreams and things that I want to do and, and, and stuff. And I, you know, I wanted to be a rock star and, and, but I mean, I just, I worked hard at whatever I was doing. Yeah. You know, as I said, I didn't in 1976, when I saw kiss, I didn't think, Oh, I'm going to be an LD one day, yeah. you know, but yeah. when the opportunity arose to run lights, I wanted, I ran lights and did the best job I could. Yeah. You know, and, and when I did the stones with Patrick, I, I you know, I, I, you know, fortunately I have timing. Yeah. You know, I have really, really good timing. And is that a, is that something you're born with? Is it something you learn? I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a, uh, it's like when I was, I had left foreigner to, 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 to be to another LD cause I had to move on to Aerosmith and ACDC and Phil Carson, the manager said, Cosmo, is there any way you can teach the, uh, your replacement how to anticipate the lighting cue so that he hits it right before it happens? I'm like, <laughs> I don't think I can do that. It's just yeah. something I do. I don't even think about it. Yeah. You know, but, but it's, 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 I don't know if that's learned or not. I just, I just hit the cue before, you know, that happens and it happens when it should. It's just a weird thing. Even Steven Tyler said that to me. Yeah. You're, that's a good LD when you you're anticipating the delay, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, so, so anyway, so that's, you know, I, I, I'm very, very fortunate that Patrick and, and Sean Richardson both saw, that talent within me and decided to exploit it in a good way, you yeah. know, invest. I mean, you know, yeah. yeah, it was great. And, you know, I, I did ACDC, you know, then, and, you know, after the first run I got, they gave me a raise. The band called me in the dressing room and gave me a raise. And the one thing I've always been is I'm a very positive, happy person. And I, and I always go in and see the band before the show and tell them, have a good show. And they told me that, that they said, Cosmo, we appreciate your positivity. It makes us feel good when we go out on stage that we, you know, we, you know, cause you know, I, I even when it's something negative, I, I try to I say, well, I tell Steven Tyler, it's I sugarcoat it. Yeah. You know, just, just to put a positive spin on it. Like uh, they'll say, Angus will say, eh, how's it going out there? And I say, well, crowd's great. I said, it's raining, but it looks like it's going to stop. It you know what I mean? I at least put a positive spin. It's raining, but yeah, you know, and, and uh, you know, I'm not going to lie to them, you know, but, but uh, you know, they're going to go out and say, well, Cosmo said it wasn't raining. Why? You know, and even if it worse, rains worse, they have this positive attitude going on the stage. So yeah. I've always been that way. I always try to vibe the band up and smile. And I've heard really and, great uh, things yeah. about uh, Brian Johnson, like that he's just such an awesome guy and just like a, you know, a man's man, like a guy that you'd want to go belly up to the bar and have a couple beers with. Well, it, it, he is. And it's really weird because there's Brian Johnson, the rock star singer for ACDC, and there's Brian Johnson, my friend. Yeah. And, it, you know, I, I still to this day, in the 30 years that I've known him and worked with him, it's, it boggles my mind that there's these two guys. And I, I hang out with Brian, you know, we'll go out drinking or watch sports or something. And I'll go, Wait, hang on a second. This is the singer for ACDC. 
Yeah. You know, it's this mind-boggling thing. He is a guy's guy. He, he just, he's a man's man. He's just a regular, you know, he's funny as hell. He's genuine. You know, he's, uh, he's just yeah. a guy you hang out with. And then yeah. he gets up on stage and sings like that. And you go, holy shit, you know? Yeah. 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 No, I've, I've just always heard really, really great things about him. And, you know, I, I, uh, I think it was Top Gear that I remember him on. So he's, he's a gearhead, like a car guy, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. yep. Oh yeah. You know, and, he loves sports and, and, um, you know, he's, he's such a great interviewer. Yeah. You know, he, he blows my mind when he interviews rock stars and race car drivers and, you know, he's a hell of a race car driver himself. Yeah. 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 He is. Yeah. That's cool. That's really cool. It's, I, I mean, again, you know, something that I definitely want to talk about is, is, you know, your longevity with these acts, because this is not an industry where longevity is your friend, you know, it, it typically it's one and done, you know, with a lot of LDs with these bands. And so the guys like you who are able to create these relationships where you're not only working for them, but you've become friends with many or all the members of the band and with their management and everything else. And you're part of the family, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. It's, it's a family. Yeah. You know, and it's, I'm drama. I'm not a drama guy. You know, it's, uh, you know, and, and as, you know, as you know, and as people who know me know, I'm have a very positive attitude and, and I'm, I have a happy demeanor and, and I, I've always been this way. I mean, it's, it's not, it's, I can't say, I mean, it's, I could say that I haven't worked at it, but of course I work at it. I always uh, am mindful of what I say. And, and, you know, even when I'm in a bad mood or something's not right, I still try to put a positive spin on it, especially when you're working with musicians who are about to go on the stage, you know, you don't want to impart your negativity on their upcoming performance. You want to yeah. be, you know, same with me. I mean, if they're going to go on stage, I'm there with them. So I, I need to be up and vibed and positive. And it's just, uh, you know, yeah. it's just, it's well, just yeah. I mean, the last thing a, a musician wants to hear right before they go on stage is, you know, Hey Cosmo, how are you? Oh, I'm, it's terrible. We lost power and the board won't come back up and you know, we've got no lights and we've got no this and, you know, they don't need to hear that right before they go on stage. You got to put a positive spin on it, right? And, well, exactly. Uh, you you yeah. have to. You really, really have to. Yeah. That's more, that's more important than when everything's going great, it's easy. But when it's not going great, that's when it shows, you know, you yeah. shows the inside. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and well, I mean, uh, the, that's important. I, I always kind of equate it to a pilot, you know, so when I talk to people and they're like, Oh my God, the sky is falling and everything's terrible and blah, blah. You know, the, the problem is think of it. As, if, if you're on an airplane and the pilot comes on and says, ladies and gentlemen, we're fucked. <laughs> you know, this plane yeah. is going down. We're probably going to die in a fiery wreck. And while he may be telling the truth, that's not what you want to do. You know, you well, want to no, say, exactly. you want to say, we've got a small problem that we're dealing with up here. Nothing to worry about, you know, just uh, stay calm. You know, we're dealing with it. And I mean, it's just right. a very different way of pu putting out the same news that keeps people from falling into a Well, panic. it's also, it's also key to come up with alternatives. Like when something goes wrong, instead of going to the band and saying, well, this is fucked and yeah. this is not working and I don't know what I'm going to do. I come up and say, well, listen, we're having issues here, but I think I have a solution Yeah, and we're going to work out an Such alternative to option to be able to make the show happen tonight. Way you know? better way to do it. Yeah, uh, I agree. You know, it's like there was a story with, that I learned from Patrick Woodruff. I mean, you know, we, we were talking about, um, uh, ad, advice and stuff. I mean, there's different things of advice, but we were, we were getting a couple of things that I learned from Patrick Woodruff. Uh, number one, when you commit to a queue, 
commit to it. You can never go back. You know, once you push that button and the lights come on or something, you, you really can't turn them off. I mean, you know, yeah. there are obviously different situations, but he, Chami, commit to the queue, you know, keep it and then move on to the next one when, it, when the time is ready. Yeah. Um, but I, we yeah. were in Germany on the Rolling Stones. We were in uh, East Berlin at this big rock quarry, and this storm moved in. And, I mean, it was a storm, and there was this huge radio tower next to us and stri- got struck by lightning, and this wind came through and this sudden downpour. It blew everything all over the stage, and at the time, it was the new DMX dimmers. They were just brand new. Instead of patching with cables, it was the DMX. So what happened was the, um, the, 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 they got all wet, you know, because it, even though they were inside behind stuff, the brain came sideways, and, and so all the dimmers were coming on and flashing. The pods were lit. Nothing, I couldn't get anything out. In the, so Patrick's, you know, we waited and tried to fix it, and they tried to get a way around it. The guys were working on it, and, and Patrick said, you know, at some point, you've got to make a decision on what to do to move on with the show because the show's going to happen. I mean, it wasn't to the point we couldn't do a show. Yeah. So he says, you yeah. need to come up with another solution. And I learned from that moment how important it was to, uh, you know, to, you, you, gotta, you, you have to stop trying to solve the problem and come up with a different solution to solve the problem. Yeah. And what we did is I had all my crew guys, they were, they were, they were able racks, and I had them turn the – they all turned the breakers on during the songs, and at the end of the song, they, sh- they turned them off. So when I called the spots out, I said, okay, and turned the dimmers off. So they, they, they spent the entire three-hour show turning on and off the dimmer racks in order to make the lights go out. That was, it, was, you know, it, was, it was a solution, but that's what I learned from that is, is come up with something that works. Stop lamenting on how do we fix this yeah. and come up with another solution. Where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, we've been going pretty chronological here, but, and one thing I don't want to skip over is um, probably one of my favorite live events ever. Not, not because of production quality or anything, but just because of the feeling it gave me and, and the amount of acts that were pulled together in a very short period of time and what the cause was, uh, the Freddie Mercury tribute um, concert, which was at uh, Wembley, right, in, in 92. Right, Wembley State. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, to me, like just an unbelievable show. And, uh, you know, whenever I hear uh, George Michael sing the, uh, you know, the, the Freddie Mercury songs on, uh, I mean, you can't hear them live anymore, of course, because unfortunately he's gone as well. But, um, you know, just goosebumps kind of stuff, like really, really great stuff. So what was that like? I mean, that was another show with, with Patrick, right? Yeah, that was a uh, you know, Patrick and Dave Hill. You know, I did a lot of stuff with Dave Hill over the years. Um, that was incredible. I mean, you know, Patrick called me, asked me to do that, and uh, it was a huge park hand rig. And uh, the cool thing about it is Patrick had his four to one studios, uh, which was a quarter scale park hand. We had this; it was on a railway arch in the Battersea, London, and so it was. Uh, it was. I'd already uh, prior to that, I'd already done. Let me think, um, Actually, that was the first thing we did in there. We did a no, we did it. We did ACDC in there. We did a Razor's Edge in there. Um, but we we brought this. We recreated this rig. It was basically sort of studio. a version of Previs, right? Like pre Previs. Yeah, sort of. A, <laughs> yeah, but real. I mean, they yeah. were they were they were MR16 pars, and you know we had trusses, and we had a rigging system. We had a stage with instruments and stuff. As you know, one quarter scale. Um, so that was an incredible experience because what would happen? I mean, it's, for me, this is one of the high points of my career. 
you know, I'm just programming lights to all the songs. I had the set list, the band were rehearsing in another studio, and we'd go to the rehearsal to see them. But one, two nights, Brian May said, I want to come and sit with you while you're doing it. Wow. And he came, and I cannot, what an awesome guy he was. I mean, and he was, I, I would do looks, and, and he, he would say, oh, my God, Freddie would love that. Freddie would love that. I mean, he was yeah. He was such a great guy to hang out with, and he was just complimenting my looks. And I was having he was putting input in, and we were doing different. You know, we were just going over through looks and stuff, and it was such an incredible experience with such an incredible guy. And and when he would say Freddie would love that, my heart would just blow up. Yeah. I mean, it would just just swell. Yeah, you know, and and uh, you know, Robert imagine. Plant came in, did the same thing. He he wanted to see what his lights oh, looked my like. God. And, wow. And he was funny because he wanted to use oil lights. You know, oil. You know, the projectors. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, that's not what I'm doing here, but I'll, you know, uh, talk to Patrick. And, you yeah. know, we didn't, we, we, we didn't, we did something on the video, something like that. But, you know, so that was, that was great. Just the lead up to it was great. And then, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it was funny. I think there was an American football game the, the night before we loaded in. And so we went to see that, which was, you know, uh, uh, just kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, uh, the, the show itself, you know, the rehearsals, but I mean, you know, talk about being the center of the, universe as far as you know entertainment goes at the time there were so many so many stars there so many bands and and uh, you know extreme was there and they did the, they did a full set of queen songs it was incredible yeah and uh the cool thing for me was um spinal tap was there and they didn't have an ld so i got to run lights for them so uh, you know i think cool. that's, i think that's every ld's dream to run lights for spinal of course tap, so. yeah that's really cool i did that and uh, you know there's so many you know i mean michael jackson was there elizabeth taylor it was incredible, and then Queen did this unbelievably great set, and, yeah. and uh, you know it was such it was it was it was a hell of an experience. I mean, you, I knew at the time it was you know it was like uh, it was like Live Aid kind of kind of sort of, yeah. and to be sitting there with me running the the, uh, the conventionals and, and Dave Hill, you know, operating the uh, the very lights and stuff. It was a uh, incredible, you know, yeah, and that's uh, Def, Def Leppard was there. Then that's when yeah. the, uh, Vivian Campbell was his first show, and and that was incredible too. Yeah. Not every, so, not every artist is going to get a send off like that one. That's for sure. No, I mean, no, that no was exactly. Just incredible. No. Incredible. And so, you know, I mean, I, I want to go back to something we, we talked for a minute about, uh, um, you know, your longevity with ACDC being 30 years now, which is incredible. And by the way, are they, they're planning to go out, right? I think I heard. Well, that. I don't know. The rumor has it, you know, the, you know, the, 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 there's nothing official yet. I mean, I, the band have done an album. I mean, that's, that's fairly obvious that, you know, they went in the studio in Vancouver uh, a year and a half ago. Right. And, you know, so now that just the waiting game, you know, it's, uh, it's, I think something will happen. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I, Angus is, I think 65 or he's going to be 65. He's still a young man. Yeah. You know, and, and um, I, I, I hope they tour. Yeah. Um, you know, as I said, there's rumors abounding about a tour at the end of this year and next year. But I mean, there was a tour. There's rumors abounding about a tour last year and this yeah. year. And there's always rumors. So I, I don't pay any attention. So you People ask me all the, the time. Dates I, yet. <laughs> you, you haven't no. blocked your calendar out yet. Yeah. No, I know. I believe me. I believe me. I'd love to. I would, yeah. you know, when ACDC goes out, it's the greatest thing in the world, you know. Yeah. So I, I really hope they do, you know, but, you know, it's that's something. Yeah, you know Brian is—he's seventy-two. You know, so well, he's, he has he's a in great special shape. style of singing that you know I don't. Uh, it's probably every year you get older, it gets a little harder to scream like that. Even though, I mean, as painful as it looks and sounds, 
it doesn't really seem to bother him that much to sing. Why? That I mean, he just—he sings. It's his voice, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, he sings it, and you know, he—he—you know—he's. They're all obviously concerned. You know, every older band is now. They want to do yeah. the best job. They don't want to. Yeah. They don't want to screw up. They don't want to. People say, "Oh, you should just hang it up." And you know, Angus. I mean, you look at this guy. I mean, he runs around the stage. I mean, you—you you know how I he know. runs around the stage. Yeah. I mean, you know, his knees, I got a 65 year old knees. They've got to be, you know, he's, he needs, I can't believe he's never had a knee replacement, but he's yeah. still going. Yeah. He's incredible. I love that guy. Yeah. And so, you know, the Scorpions is another band that I think you worked with what, 15 years or something. Like well, a, yeah, yeah, but yeah, on, yeah, pretty much. I think, I think around 12 years was the final tally, yeah. you know, it's, it's, I have a, there's a manager named Stuart Young and he, he he was a manager with uh, ACDC at the time. He's not anymore, but he managed ACDC when I was working for him the first time. Yeah. He also managed Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, who I did. He managed a foreigner who I worked with him on that. The Scorpions. So I was very fortunate to be with him, and every time he needed an LD, he would call on me. Yeah. So, you know, that was a, that was a great that's a great thing to have, uh, you know, to have a manager that, that really loves your work and manages yeah. a lot of bands. Absolutely. You know, so... Well, yeah, so, and Foreigner yeah, Scorp- is another one that you mentioned too, and and so you were with Foreigner when they were Foreigner, right? Not the cover band that they well, are now. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's okay. So Foreigner, the first time I worked with them, when I was in New York, the sound engineer Michael Young was the sound engineer for Foreigner was the producer for the band I was telling you about before, Falconetti. Right. So. We we uh, we went to somehow I got intertwined and they, they needed an assistant guitar tech for mixed guitar tech and I don't know if it was a manufactured job because they liked me but they kind of put me to, to be his assistant you know I helped set up the tuning room and did stuff like that so I did that so I met Mick Jones and this is 1979 and I did you know I didn't do that. I didn't work that long with Foreigner just a, just a, just a, just a little bit um, so anyway fast forward to 95 well they they needed an LD and Stuart Young being the manager said, do you want to go do this? So, so Mick vaguely remembered me from 1979. Yeah. And, uh, so, um, I started running lights for them. I took over for Steve Owens. And, uh, so I, I had a run with them for a few years and then, uh, I did other things. And then, um, I did, I don't know. I did shows on and off for them because they, they would go, you know, depending on who was available. And then 2006, uh, Phil Carson and Stuart Young were managing foreigner and, and, uh, I knew they were looking for an LD, and I called Phil Carson, and he, I said, I'd love to do it. And he said, well, he says, we're not paying much. He says, but if you take it on, he says, I'll make sure you pay climbs. And so I, I took it at a low rate, but I was happy because I was working with Mick again. Yeah. Uh, Lou Graham was gone by this time. Um, so it was Mick Jones, and they brought in Kelly Hansen, and they, most of the current band now. Jason Bonham, who I'd known since the 80s, he was the drummer. So I started working with them, and we, you know, I watched this band work their way up and uh, you know, back up again. And uh, it was a great run. It was a lot of hard work, some of the hardest work I've ever done. But, you know, it was a, it was a fun time. And, you yeah. know, I worked with them. And the thing is, though, I would leave to go do ACDC or Aerosmith. And I went and did Meatloaf once. And Mick Jones said, you know, I love having you. I love your lights. He says, but I, I, I kind of need more feet on the ground, you know. Because I was starting to design stuff. And he, he, said, and he said, can you just design and put another guy in so we get another guy? And that was probably 2016. Yeah. And he took over. Yeah. And uh, it's funny because he just actually he just actually quit uh, because he just had a child. And he wants to stay home and raise a child. So I got another guy in to replace him, Joel Joel Reef, who's Alice Cooper's oh, yeah. LD. So. Yeah, yeah, no, I know Joel. 
Yeah, he's taken over for me on that, and so far he's doing a good job. But, oh, but yeah, cool. Foreigner was a, was a great thing, and it, you know, it was it's, it's it's funny. I mean, I know what you're saying about cover band, and it, it's it's a lot of people think that you know, but I mean, it, it is it, you know, Mick Jones isn't always there, but most of the guys in the band, I mean, like Tom Gimble has been there since 1992. Yeah, um, and everybody else has been there probably since about 90, sorry, 2005. So it's, it's just handpicked by him. It, it's just weird that they're really. I mean. It's weird, but really cool too, that they have no original members in the band uh, on a full-time basis. Well, it is, and it, the, the thing though, because if you go back and look, the last time there was the original members of the band was 1983. That's crazy. You know, man. and I, 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 exactly. So they've yeah. never, and they're one of these bands that nobody really knew. Most of them, they knew Mick Jones and, and Lou Graham. Yeah. You know, and and in the 90s when I worked with them, Lou was there, and then Lou had a brain tumor, and then. They kind of things just went really bad in two thousand and two, and that's when they two thousand three they kind of broke up. Well, and this I don't remember his name, but this singer that they have now, who I I think he was from like an eighties band called Hurricane, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kelly Hansen was yeah Kelly Hansen, right? Yeah. And it's really funny. He's great. Another little tidbit: the bands I worked for in New York, I worked for a band called D.L. Byron, and uh, the guitar player in D.L. Byron was a guy named Robert Sarzo, yeah, who was Rudy Sarzo's brother. Yeah, of course. Well, Robert Sarzo was in Hurricane. Yeah. That's so interesting. It's just, and then an I end up working with Kelly. So it's just a yeah. small world, as they say. Yeah. So you still work with foreigners. So you're kind of like a consultant to them or something. So they come to you. Yeah, and, I'm more of a consultant. You yeah. know, they come to me like when Joel came in, they said, would you design? And I said, well, we'll design it together and then I'll put my stamp of approval on it. So that That's kind cool. of thing. So That's cool. Which is kind of like me and Patrick work together like that. You know, he's, they definitely, ACDC wants a stamp of approval, but he, always wants my input on design and stuff like that because he knows I'm going to run it. Now the so band know that too. So, you but, still co-design with you know, Patrick it, then on, on ACDC? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, pretty pretty much. You know, and then he lets me program everything myself and he'll come and watch watch what I'm doing and go, great, because he knows I'm going to make a great show. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's probably a, a very um, tightly held relationship for you, the one with Patrick Woodruff, right? Like you... Uh, you've been with him for a long time as well, since 19, what, 89? Yeah, since yeah. the Yeah. Yes, I mean, and the thing, the thing is, though, is, is we, he does a lot of other stuff, but he only brings me in on the stuff that he thinks I'll enjoy and, and the rock stuff. And, yeah. you know, he brought me in on Black Sabbath uh, back in uh, 1999. Uh, he's brought me in on several things, different things over the years, but it's always rock-oriented. It's, it's uh, you know, we talked about, you know, he he gave me this, this after the first ACDC tour I did, the Stones are getting ready to go out with, so was ACDC. So he said to me, you got to make a choice. I'll put you on the Stones or I'll put you on ACDC. And I I said, I want to do ACDC. And the dumb thing was, is ACDC postponed their tour, so I could have done the Stones. And as it happens, the Stones and ACDC don't really tour at the same time anymore. They kind of have lately, but I could have probably done both bands. But then again, that's just being greedy. And Ethan Weber, Ethan Weber is doing such a stunning job out there as, as the Stones LD. It's yeah. all good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really cool. So now, I think, unless I, because uh, I just kind of read through and read your uh, the CV that you've got on your website and sort of the the uh, what would you call it timeline, I guess. And the only thing I see from 2012 to now is Aerosmith. So have you been working exclusively with Aerosmith for the last eight years? Well, I mean. No, I mean we've been we've been doing. Let's see. I mean the the that particular resume. I, I know what you're, I'm looking at it right now. It, yeah. It, uh, I I just haven't updated it. it it's oh, dumb. Um, oh. But I mean, I have. 
I mean, let's see. Since 2000, I started them in, in April of 2012. I started started working with them. Um, I let's see. I've done um, okay. The Rolling Stones. Not the Rolling Stones. Listen to me. So since then, I mean, ACDC has done uh, another tour. Oh, um, right. Of course, yeah. You know, AC, ACDC did uh, Rock or Bust, and and uh, the thing is, is ACDC is my main band, and when when yeah. ACDC. Uh, goes out. Whenever I work for any new band, I say, listen, I'm here until ACDC goes out. That's part of the deal. And they go, that's yeah. fine. And it's cool because they, they look and they go, well, it's a feather in our cap. Like the Scorpions used to say, we don't mind Cosmo because when you go to ACDC and we have another LD, we can say our normal LD is doing ACDC. So, yeah, yeah. so that's, yeah. that's kind of how that well, works out. If you're going to lose and, out, um, losing out to ACDC isn't necessarily a terrible thing. So you were, you were on this most recent tour where they did a bunch of stadiums and, and, uh, had, uh, had Axl Rose uh, come in for Brian, yep, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, I was so there. Yep. What was that like? I mean, uh, you know, my opinion as a as a quote fan is that he did way better than I ever expected him to. You know, like he really made me sort of a fan of his again because for a, the longest time I thought Axl, eh, he's a douche. But well, I mean, I know again, exactly. A lot I'm, of people were like that, and I, and I agree. He did some shitty things, you know, yeah, to fans. But what stuff. a singer! I mean, holy Christ, his voice. Speaking of guys who have managed to hold it together, like he wouldn't be one that I would expect because he put on a bunch of weight. You know, he didn't have the greatest lifestyle, etc. So you'd think he'd lose his voice. But to me, he's singing better now than he was back then in some ways. Well, I mean, he, he I got to say, you know, I was there when everything started and he, he was so respectful he was so, um, he wanted to make a great impression. He went and learned the songs verbatim to the albums. He, 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 he was, he knew he, he had been given this tremendous opportunity and he didn't want to screw it up. And he wanted to show the respect to Angus and the rest of the band. And, uh, so he was great, you know and I mean? He was, he did, you know, and he kind of pushed the band a little bit to do up more Bon Scott stuff, stuff they hadn't done since Bon Scott had died. So, yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, he was never meant to replace Brian. He was brought in to finish the tour out. Yeah. You know, I I mean, who knows what the future held, but at the bottom line, Angus wanted, he said, we finished tours. Yeah. So we finished the tour. Yeah. Yeah. You no, know, I mean, so. that was, that was really incredible. It, it really was. And, you know, again, hats off to, uh, to Axel because not only was he doing, you know, replacing a guy that, that does have a very challenging, uh, tone to him, Brian Johnson, but um, but he was also doing guns shows, so he was kind of going. He was back yeah. back and forth, yeah. right, between Guns and Roses. And he and, had broken his. Yeah, and he broke his uh, ankle or something. Yeah. So yeah, it was a, it was he he did a great job, you know. Yeah. I mean, ACDC fans, a lot of the purists hated him, and but that, as I said, it wasn't he wasn't meant as a replacement for Brian or as the new singer for ACDC. He yeah, was, it was a he was there to finish the tour and. Yeah, and I I wish everybody would have just taken it as a novelty and go see it, you know, and you know, but he says, oh, it's going to ruin the legacy of ACDC, and I said, well, hang on a second, go back and listen to Back in Black, and I think it'll sound exactly the same. Yeah, you know, so you know, it's it's just, it's not like it's not like they killed somebody or you know we're, we're child rapists or something. Yeah, you know, they just they got a new thing to finish a tour, so. Thankfully, so, I think people are over it now. But I mean, there's still people that you know, if you, either if you, especially in Australia, they'll say, "And we're still getting you're we're still getting used to the new singer." Yeah. You know, being Brian Johnson. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. You yeah. know, so yeah. 
This um, um, this Aerosmith residency. How did how did uh, how did this all come about for you? Like, I mean, I know the band obviously went through their negotiations and stuff, but um, you know, you uh, like, I'm just curious what it's like to design a rig for a residency. I'm sure it's different than a touring rig. It's well, it was it was a real struggle at first because. Uh, they brought it, they, they, you know, we talked about it and I said, they were just, you know, I said, guys, you just can't do a, go do a show. I said, you need to do this up and do it right and bring in a production. Yeah. And they agreed. And, and what had happened is, you know, I'm not going to get into the details, the the drama, but essentially they got Steve Dixon, who's, who's done a lot of shows. He, he, he did uh, Britney Spears and other shows and he wanted to bring in his whole team. So he convinced the band to bring in his team of designers and, you know, which is fine, but it kind of left a lot of us out in the cold. Right. And Stephen even came to me and said, "Listen, Cosmo, I'm sorry, but we're going to go with Fireplay and Nick Whitehouse, and and but we want." He says, "I want you to operate it because your timing is impeccable, and I want you to operate it." So, so what ha- that kind of happened? It was disappointing, but you know, hey, it it is what it is. And yeah. and uh, so I tried to tell everybody they wanted to do this kind of Vegasy show, and I said, "You know what? This is Aerosmith. It's not going to work." But um, it, anyway, it was a learning curve for for especially for them. And, uh, you know, there's going to be video segues and stuff like that. And, and, and it ended up most of them went away just because the band wanted to get up and play like they do. Yeah. And, uh, so, so Nick Whitehouse designed it stuff and we talked about it. He, I did a tour, I did a uh, design in 2017 and, and, and I, and some of that was used in the design of, you know, the, the way that it is now. Uh, but he did a great design and Steve, Stephen Douglas came in. So the three of us sat down and programmed. And um, it was a little too boring for Steven Tyler. He wanted, like me, the big in-your-face rock looks. Yeah. So he we had a, you know, the night before the first show, we had to do a lot of changes. And then I spent the days off for the next couple of weeks just reprogramming stuff to make it more dynamic. You know, and, and so it all, all ended up being great. It all yeah. ended up looking great and happy. The band's happy. And it, it is, as far as I'm concerned, it's the best rock show on, on the Strip. Yeah. You know, and, and I haven't so seen it, it was, yet, but you know, I'm, I'm going to be in Vegas in, uh, is it still there or is it out? Yeah, now? yeah, we're, well, we're off now. We come back in May and uh, they, they're oh, talking cool. about extending it, but they, 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 you know, we'll, we'll see. We, we yeah. got Europe to do first. Well, I'm, I'm there in June for uh, the Infocom show. And uh, so I'm going to try and get over and see it then because I. Yeah, I let me know. I will, I will be there. So yeah, you, cool. you, everybody who sees the show are just completely blown away. Yeah, I know, you and know, I've talked to loads of people. I know for LDI last year, you had a group of people come in to see it, and uh, I just haven't been able to yet. But I, I definitely plan to go see it in June because uh, you know before it leaves, I'd, I'd like to. I just like to see it in that setting. It seems like a more sort of smaller, more intimate kind of Vegasy setting, and uh, I would think it's a lot of fun. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it. But um, and you know, so how do you? How are you in the same room or in the same venue or in the same, uh, sometimes even car traveling to the gig or whatever? How do you avoid the drama, <laughs> you know, that goes on with any of these bands? But I'm, I know lately with Aerosmith, there's been some stuff going on. Um, how do you stay out of that? Just stay out of it? Well, I mean, you know, I, I pretty much keep my opinion to myself. Yeah. You know, probably a um, good, probably a and good idea. For the most part, my opinion doesn't count most of the time. I don't, I don't get involved in the dr- band's drama. Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny. This, this actual one thing goes back to my first gig with Falcon Eddie when I was in the rehearsal loft 
with them and they were playing songs. They were learning stuff and they were, you know, doing, you know, they were as bands do, they were rehearsing. I was just a tech. I was sitting there. Yeah. And I opened yeah. my mouth and this is like my first or second day there when they were rehearsing. I opened my mouth and said, I thought it sounded great. And then the, the bass player singer looked at me and said, shut up. <laughs> you know? And That's I realized funny. then it's none of my business. It's, yeah. it's not, it's not up to me as a, even if I was a fan, maybe they ask me, but when they're rehearsing, you know, when things are like that, it's none of my business. Yeah. So I learned that yeah. right in the bright off the bat, you know, I thought, okay, it's none of my business. But what you about know? when so they I've ask always you, what if, if they ask you, how do you think it sounded? Are you going to, are you going to lie and say it was perfect or are you going to? Well, gonna, well yeah. this is the thing. I don't, Steven Tyler, the problem with Steven Tyler, not a problem. People have a tendency to lie to him because they're scared of him. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, yeah. you, you still want to do the right thing and say the right thing and you, and you want to make them happy. And I told him off the bat, I'll never lie to you, you know, and, and I saw, I see the, I see what happens when he's very good. He can tell when you're lying. He can, you know, so you don't lie to him. And I, I and so what I do is he, we'll talk about things and I'll say, you know, I don't lie to you. I said, I'll sugarcoat things, but I, I'll never lie to you. And he gets mad at me. He says, don't sugarcoat things. I said, listen, this is the way I am. Just be happy that I don't lie to you. And I said, but, yeah. but I'm not going to sit here and be brutally. He said, well, I do. And I said, well, that's you. You can be brutally yeah. honest. I, I can be gig. brutally honest. <laughs> I need a gig. Well, yeah. So exactly. So, I mean, I will still tell them things and, and, uh, you know, but be, be nice about it. Yeah. You know, and give my thoughts or I'll say, you know, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, but I just, I just, I, as I said, at a very early stage in my career, I learned what's my business and what's not my business. Yeah. You know, do you have so to, I, I do you have to, to be a Patriots like, fan? Like the whole thing was, what's that? Do you have to be a Patriots fan? Like, do you have to pretend you're a Patriots fan when you're around them? No, 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 no. They know they are. No, no, I'm, yeah, I'm, they know I'm a Dolphins fan, which that's is the, good. you know, yeah, that's good. antipathy of a, of a, of a Patriots fan. Of so. course. Yeah. I'm a Dolphins fan too. So yeah, that's, that's pretty funny. I mean, he, he seems like a really fun, uh, guy to just be around and to work with and, and stuff. So. Well, he's, there's so many, he's, there's good qualities. I mean, he's very, very difficult at times and sometimes he's unreasonable, you know, but you know, as I said, I just, I don't take a lot of things personally. He knows I'm working. I mean, he, he tries to pull the Charlie Hernandez once said to me, working for Aerosmith will be the best gig you've ever done because they push you to the, do your finest. Yeah. And you know, he's never, he's never, I'm not gonna say he's never happy. He's happy, but he always thinks you can do a little bit better. And that's great. That's a great motivation. You know, yeah. so you try harder than you would on anything. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, um, so that, that's the way I look at it with him and, and, and you know, it, He's never going to be a hundred percent happy, but he's always going to say that was a great show, but yeah. that was a great thing, but yeah. Yeah. you know, and that's, that's fine. But you know, it's, it's not meant as a dig. It's, it's meant as keep doing better. Yeah. Give me so, another better moment like that. Come up with even a better idea. So something you know, that so. I don't think a lot of people know about you is that you are a big world war two buff. And so how did that happen? Well, I just, I mean, ever since I was a kid, I mean, I wanted to be a, oh, I wanted to be a pilot. I love airplanes, you know, and, and, you know, as kids, there's things about war that are fascinating, but I was just so interested in, and especially World War II, you know, both, both theaters, Pacific and, and uh, European theater. Um, you know, I've always had a travel bug, you know, I've looked at big pictures and books and films and stuff. And, and to me, it never really existed because I never saw it personally. So I always wanted to travel. Um, and then being a history buff, you know, I mean, Hitler always intrigued the hell out of me. I'm like, how did this guy, you know, you know, the, get, get to where he was and do what he did. I mean, everybody says who was the biggest mover and shaker of the 20th century. Well, it was Adolf Hitler, whether you like it or not. I mean, 
you know, so, so, and, and so the first time, you know, when I went to Europe and especially Germany, all of a sudden I'm there where I've read books and stories and war stories and movies. I'm there. And it was just unbelievable that, that it wasn't well, no longer a story. It was, it happened right here. Yeah. You know, Hitler had stood right here, you know, that this battle happened here. This city was flattened. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just amazing. Same thing when I went to Japan, you know, especially Japan, even more so because before World War II, Japan was such a closed culture, you know, so, you know, and me being born in 1961, I mean, the war had just barely been over when I was born. You know, I grew up in the Cold War. So, you know, first time I went to Moscow, the same, same thing. It was just unbelievable to me that I was actually in these places. Same, same for me. I'll never forget my, my, uh, then wife and I were going to Moscow with, uh, Michael Brokaw and Steve Cohen and, uh, Robert Roth and Nick Jackson for the start of the Eagles tour. And I just remember landing in Moscow and just looking out the window and thinking, you know, not that long ago, you really couldn't come here. You know, it was like we were bitter, bitter enemies. And now here I am landing in Moscow. And I think it was like 1999, maybe, or 2000. It was probably 99. Um, And it was just a really surreal, weird feeling. Well, exactly. I mean, yes, yeah. I mean, that's especially when we first time I went there. We were, it was the Cold War had just. I mean, I'd been over there before the wall came down, and it was, right. you know, it was really different then. But when the wall first came down, it was amazing being there, seeing the changes happen so quickly. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. but uh, you know, see, seeing going to Lenin's tomb and seeing the changing of the guard, and yeah, uh, it was, you know, it was just incredible. It was just incredible. So you know, I, it's funny. I videotaped a lot of it when we went there on the ACDC tour. And uh, I need to archive that stuff because yeah. uh, I need to get it transferred from video. But, uh, oh, yeah, so I'm getting ready to do that. That'd be very cool. That'd be very cool. So I have this thing that I like to do that I call the quick six. And um, it really is just I every podcast, I seem to ask some of the same questions. So I just kind of organized it and put them together. And occasionally, I'll even give a guest uh, sort of a preview. And even when I don't, most people have heard another podcast, and they know they're prepared for some of these questions, which means I should start changing them up so that people aren't so prepared. But, um, but you know, I like, a lot of people who listen to the podcast are young people who are either new to the business or thinking about getting in the business or they're students of the business. And so they're listening to this to really gain advice and to, to learn from us, believe it or not. And I think sometimes we're doing some pretty silly things on the road thinking somebody's going to want to learn from this. But, um, so with that said, what is the best piece of advice you've ever given or received? Well, I, 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 as far as been given, as I said, I think Patrick would do two things, two things that had to do with that show in Berlin. Um, and the number one was that when, you have, when you're faced with a problem and you can't seem to, I mean, let's see how to put this. When you're, when you're faced with a problem and you can't find the solution you want, you really have to start going out, thinking outside the box. And that, was, that, that I learned so much to this day. You know, when you come up with a problem and you don't see a solution, you've got to find one. You've yeah. got to find one. You just can't go, I can't do it. Yeah, you have to go, always, okay, well, what else is going to work? It, it's and you not have to always some the point obvious stop answer. Working on, yeah, you have to stop working on the, the solution you think is going to work and go, okay, I'm, I'm going to beat my head against the wall. What else do I, can I do? Yeah. You, have to, that's the, you have to make that point of where you say, okay, I'm moving on from this fix. What can I do to fix this? You know? Yeah, I love that. Um, 
so that's that's one thing you know that was really important to me. And also, like I said, as far as just the operating of, of a lighting director, commit to a cue, you're done. You, you can't pull it back. It's yeah. like. You can, but it looks stupid. So you just commit to it and move on. You close your eyes, whatever the hell you want to do, and you wait for the next cue to happen. Yeah. If you're early, you're early. If you take it away, it looks like you screwed up. Yeah. You, you screwed up, but you know, don't make it look even worse. So. Well, and the funny thing, the, the funny thing about lighting directors, though, is and and anyone in this industry, we think that everyone just saw that mistake or that problem. Yeah, of course. And. 99.99999 percent of the people did not <laughs> they did not exactly. notice anything so well, and yeah. steven tyler says that he said they they may not have noticed it but but i you notice you know it's, yeah. it's that's the whole thing is you know yeah and that makes you makes you better and yeah. as far as giving giving advice I, one thing i i i had a there was a you know i i do one thing i love about acdc is they say yeah we're just a bar band you know, we're still a bar band, but they right. play stadiums. Right. You know, and I, and, t- and I had somebody ask me one time about, you know, I think it was an interview and they wanted to know about, you know, I've talked to guys about it, like for the opening act, they're scared to death because their bands on a stadium stage. And I said, uh, my whole thing, advice to people who are, you know, getting on, get, getting into a bigger arena, pun intended, yeah. is, is it, if you do lights in a club or a theater, it's, it's the same thing. It's just more lights and they're bigger. Do the same thing. And when you think about it like that, it's not nearly as overwhelming and, and frightening, you know, and that's, you know, I mean, I, I think about it. I walk into a, I have no problem walking into a stadium with a huge lighting rig and running a show. Yeah. I don't even think about it. I mean, I'm nervous that I want to do a good job and, and stuff, but I, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't overwhelm me. Yeah. Like, 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 like it should, you yeah. know, it's just, it's just, to me, it's just, I'm just coming in and, you know, it's just bigger. So that's the advice. That's the advice I could give to especially new LDs in the business well, or anything you do. On that note, though, um, when when you're doing a stadium or a small show or whatever it is, are you designing just for the audience or are you designing for the eight billion people who are going to see the YouTube videos that all of these people are going to well, be posting online? Okay, let's YouTube. YouTube, I don't, I don't, I, I don't care about. I mean, I don't think about it. But here's the thing I learned from David Mallett, the video director, many years ago. He says, make the show look good for the video. He, he said, it's important for this audience, but the video is going to be forever. So yeah. when I do a video for a, a show, I make sure it's made for the video. I still want the audience to see a show. I mean, I don't make it so different, but it's like I don't generally use any colors in my spotlights when I do a video because yeah. it doesn't look right on a video. But it's funny, it's funny you say, though that um, you don't care about the YouTube people or whatever. But the thing is, and I forget which designer said this, somebody who was was on this podcast said that there are 10,000 people in that arena, but you know, probably about 1,500 or 2,000 of them are recording a song or the entire show, and they're going to go home and pop that up on YouTube and try and get a bunch of hits. And some of those people are going to get tens of thousands of hits, and overall, this show tonight may be seen by hundreds of thousands of people. Well, okay. Well, okay. well let YouTube. me. I mean, I'm not dismissing. On a four-inch screen. Dismissing the YouTube, right. Well, I'm not dismissing the YouTube yeah. people in, in that sense. What I'm saying is that I, I don't generally. Here's the thing. My show is is my shows are generally brightly lit. I make sure the, the musicians and the drummer and the keyboard, anybody on the stage, is lit. Yeah. So I guess I don't think about it because I, I know it's going to look good on YouTube. 
Yeah, yeah, you that, see what that I'm makes saying? perfect sense. Just differentiating yeah, between a video, sense. but as far as YouTube, it, it, it's going to look good because it looks good to the to the audience, and yeah. it's like it's yeah. not like the band are in the dark. Everybody's lit. That's my that's my key thing. Is I like that band. I you know yeah. the, the whole thing, like the money, but I want everybody in that band to be seen. I try to light them all evenly, and you know I go back. I mean Angus Young would watch, and he would come to me and go, "Man, that looks great on YouTube." Yeah. You know, and it's it's yeah. uh, so. I mean, yeah, of course I think about it, but yeah. It's just, yeah. I think that my shows, the way I run them, operate them, uh, and design them, and, and the, the cues I build look, look good to me, yeah. they're going to look good on YouTube. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So it, in this industry, we're very fortunate in that um, we get to meet people that most people never get to meet. We get to see things and do things that most people never get to see or do. You know, you just mentioned Moscow and some of the things you did in Moscow, some of the things I did in Moscow. I mean, I remember every morning having breakfast with a different member of the Eagles, you know, which was pretty cool, you know, because they didn't eat together. Yeah, no so, kidding, yeah. Yeah, so, I, and I'd ride to the venue because they all rode in separate vans, so I'd ride with a different member each day to the venue. And, <laughs> you know, th- those are cool moments, like just sitting, having breakfast with Joe Walsh and talking to him over breakfast, you know, not over a drink. And... um so what in your career, what's, what's your like biggest, what I would call pinch me moment? Well, it's, I mean, I have a lot. I thought about this. Um, the, for me, the one thing I like to tell people who ask a similar question is, I mean, I mean, I, you know, I met, I had a good time with Jimmy Page a while ago and that was incredible, but that wasn't really a career thing. It was just, it was because of my career, but yeah. you know, Jimmy Page is one of my favorite people of all time. But for me, the defining moment of my career was I was at the Rolling Stones. You know, uh, we we done Japan. We were in Europe, and we were actually in a we were in West Berlin. We were playing the Olympic Stadium, and uh, I'll never forget this moment. I, I put the audience lights up in part of one of the songs, and I looked around me and I saw people singing and smiling and laughing and dancing and swaying. And I, you know, I had this moment because it was kind of a standstill in the show where they were singing. And I thought, how lucky am I? As I said, this is relatively early on in my LD career. I'm looking at all these people smiling and laughing and the band on stage smiling and singing. And and I thought, this is incredible that I am part of bringing this much joy to not just people here in West Berlin, but all over the world. That I'm, I'm being included with the Rolling Stones to be able to, to make people smile and laugh and dance and sing. And it's like... What a great, that for me was a defining moment in my career that, you know, that, that my job creates this or helps create this. I like that. You know, that was a pinch me moment when I'm looking up off my, because I was up on, you know, the stadium show and I'm up on my condo looking out at people going, man, this, this is unbelievable. That's so cool. You know? Yeah. Well, I had a similar moment like that with, uh, just standing with Peter Morse at, at front of house for um, Michael Jackson in uh, Prague, the start of the big Michael Jackson uh, world tour, right before he started to get in some trouble and had to go to court and stuff. But, um, I mean, there was 150,000 or 125,000 people at that show. And I remember just standing up there at, on, on the front of house uh, platform and um, just going, wow. <laughs> this is pretty cool. I'm pretty lucky right now, you know? And, uh, yeah, I mean, we're fortunate. This is such a cool business that we get to have those moments. So what's, hundred um, yeah, percent exactly. 
what is one piece of gear that you cannot do your job without that you have to every show or every time you go out to a show, you've got to bring this tool or piece of equipment or something? Well, I mean, you know, obviously there's, there's, I thought about this. I mean, there's obviously a lot of different things, you know, from the light itself to the console, uh, spotlights. I mean, I, 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 for lack of being able to think of a better thing, I mean, the, the, uh, I mean, uh, let's let's try this one out. A console. Yeah. I mean, does that fit into what you're looking for? It could. I mean, is it a specific console? Well, I mean, if I could have my choice, I would love the Icon console, which to this day is the best console I ever I ever used. It was an extension of my hand. Yeah, a but lot of people say that. It's kind of like for me. I mean, you know, light is a light. It puts out lights and stuff like that, and you know, but a console is like a guitar. Yeah. For me, you, you, guitars are all the same, but, but you know, the, your particular guitar, the one you like and the strings on it, and, the, and it becomes an extension. Yeah. Um, I mean, so for me, it's the console is the most important thing, the ability to make the lights do what I want them to do. Yeah. Cool. Uh, you know, no, I'm I mean, not a big, I mean, I have my favorite lights and I like lights, but lights are lights. I mean, yeah. I'm a Parkhand guy. I mean, Parkhand is my favorite light of all time. Because it's because it's so simple and, and, and you're a rock and so roll much. guy too. You know the the exactly, exactly the greatest rock and roll shows had you know a thousand pars up there facing you in the rig. You know it was just such a cool look. Right, and the attack and decay of yeah. of, of a par can oh, matches yeah. the the way guitars sound and yeah, you know and but, but the console you know, <laughs> a console not necessarily a particular console but a. A console that allows me to, 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 to extend myself. Yeah, there's no, the there's no wrong answer. I mean, I've had people say, you know, a notepad, a pen and a paper. Right. That's what I can't do my gig without. I got to have a pen and a piece of paper to, to take notes or whatever. Um, I've, I've had people say, you know, a particular multi-tool. I've got to have this tool in my pocket or else I'm just lost. I can't do a show without it. So there's no wrong answer. It's, it's just an interesting question that, uh, for some it's a Verilite VL 2600 for others. It's a console. Right. So, um, speaking of gear, something that hasn't been built or created or developed yet that you'd love to see developed. Well, I mean, getting back to the park hand, I'm frustrated, although Verilite has finally put something out, is they've never come up with a replacement for the park hand or the par bubble, yeah. the bulb. They've never, they've, they've come up with, you know, all these great moving lights and wash lights and beamy lights and sharp focus lights. And, um, you know, they, they, you know the cool thing in the, back in the 70s and 80s is they, they came up with the ray light, which was a version of, the, of a, you know, the 600 watt version of the thousand watt par can, which gave you the same similar thing, but at 400 watts less, so you could have more pars. Right. You know, so that the ray light for me was one of the things that was like, this is cool. So it just it boggles my mind that companies like Roby and at high end haven't come up with a par can bubble replacement because yeah. I think of all these companies in the Midwest with tons of par trusses. And they still have old 1,000 watt tungsten, you know, or you know, incandescent lights. Yeah, you're right. That you need a ton of power to run, yeah. and it's like right. I don't even care if it has color. How about you make something that looks like a par bulb that fits in the back of the par can that you just need to run a couple of cables to, one for DMX and one for power. Hell, you can do it on both. You know, and that, and that way you can change your. You can you, all of a sudden you're you're you're, you're uh, when you have 120,000 watts of power, all of a sudden you're down to you know 
10,000 watts. Well, power. and there was, so there was, uh, Coomar made one called the Parlight LED, and it was very, very cool, and it did a lot of really cool things, but it wasn't bright enough to replace the actual right. par. Well, that, that's the problem, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, Very Light has just re- issued this light. It's a, it's a par cam, but then I read that it's a little bit smaller than a par cam. I'm like, oh, why would you do that? Yeah. Make a bulb that sits in the back of a par cam. I don't see the complication. Yeah. And that way, because there's nothing like, I love the, the thing I can't stand about LED pars is the source. Yeah. It's a bunch of dots or a pattern. I like the gel. Well, and you can you get away from that now. Device. You can get away from all of that now. That's the thing. You don't have to have that bunch of dots or whatever. And you can create LED packages that look just like a bulb. And, and so many applications have already done that. When you look at architectural and residential lighting and stuff yeah. and commercial lighting, they don't look like dots unless you n- kind of want them to look like dots usually, right? Well, exactly, so, exactly. But the thing, you know, the, the, I, I think what we as an industry, and I say we because I've always been sort of on the equipment supply side of the industry, we have this problem where we can't stop ourselves. And so if I'm going to create an LED PAR... I'm not just going to stop at that. I'm going to make it do all these cool things and change color and blah, 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 blah. And next thing you know, I've gotten rid of that core reason for creating the LED bar, right? To replace the par of old. And uh, Well, exactly. So, no, that's that's a really good one. And, and you know, it's funny because um, uh, I think it was Robert Roth who said, you know, everybody wants things smaller with more things in them and framing and all these different things. I want a big arena light that's really, really bright that I can put on a 60-foot trim or whatever, you know, something I can do stadium shows with. I want a big, bright, moving light. And, you know, he's right. I mean, it's like we kind of... It reminds me of a kid's soccer game. If you've ever seen a kid's soccer game, the ball goes over there and all the kids follow the ball around. You know, it's not like people are going over to the other side of the field anticipating a pass. They all just follow the ball around in this swarm. And I think as an industry, we behave a bit like that too, you know? Uh, We get fixated on, oh, now everybody wants to do this. Oh, now everybody wants to do this. And um, it seems like we're starting to see some sort of outliers that are going, well, I'm going to go a completely different direction and create something unique. And that's where, where you see products come out like that Astera tube. And I don't know if you've ever used those, but, uh, you know, it's a very simple colored LED tube that's on every television show, every, yeah, yeah, I, know, I've not used them, but I've seen them a lot. Yeah. yeah. And it's battery operated and, you know, just very simple, basic product, but they're selling tens of thousands of these things. I mean, it's one of the most, you know, uh, highly purchased products in the lighting business today. And it's simple as hell. And, you know, they didn't let themselves get, uh, uh, get it run away with it. You know, um, who is, or was the greatest influence in your career? Uh, uh, that's, that's a tough one. I mean, as far as career wise, um, there are so many LDs that have had some influence, Howard Ungerleiter, uh, um, Tom Littrell, I mean, Patrick Woodruff, I mean, Patrick Woodruff particularly, because, you know, he, 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 he was there when I really started becoming an LD and he, he saw what I was, could be. And he, he pushed me and he, uh, you know, I, I have to say Patrick Woodruff would probably be the, the number one, but yeah. I mean, even, you know, even like Dave Davidian and, and Paul Dexter, you know, watching their work when I was a spotlight operator in, in Lakeland and, you know, watching Dio and Rush and, you know, 
Yeah. Uh, you know, Larry Sizemore was ZZ Top. I mean, just these guys that, you know, had a huge influence of a huge influence of how I saw life and how to program life and how to build looks and stuff. And yeah. Angus McPhail, you know, when I went on the cure, I mean, he's the first real LD that I worked with. Wow. You know, and, and he was a very, he's a very artistic LD. And, and uh, I learned a lot from him, you know, watching him do, you know, program stuff. And, well, you're, and, uh, you're but, kind but I would of a say sponge. Patrick like, Wood are probably the most. You, you seem to pick up something from everyone you work with. And so yeah. I can understand how that would be a tough one to answer because, you know, everything you've said for the last over two hours now has been, you know, I loved working with him. I learned so much. I loved working with that band. I learned so much. I loved working with this guy over here doing even pushing boxes. I learned so much. And every step of the way you were you were picking up pointers and, and uh, ideas and just, you know, sort of directing your career based on little pieces you were picking up from, from everything and from your, your surroundings. Right. Well, it goes back to what I was saying about, I'm, I'm very observant. Yeah. You know, I'm, and that just means you know, exactly picking up on things and, you know, just, just, just exactly picking up on things and everybody I've ever worked with, I learned something from it. So yeah. no, it's amazing. It's a, you know, everybody, you know, has an influence on you some more than others, but it helps, makes you who you are. Well, and then, you know, that plays right into my next question, which is how do you then pay that forward? So you are collecting all of this information and you've got a, a, a huge um, package of experience now and, and collection of experiences and, and knowledge and just having done some, some of the coolest things in, in the rock and roll lighting world. So how do you give back? And, uh, you know, I'll give you some examples through mentoring um, younger people coming into the business. Uh, some people actually go to colleges and universities for either theater or uh, drama or even lighting specifically, and they are doing classes um, or they speak in different uh, scenarios, training, coaching. Um, or even just, you know, charity. And, and uh, I know within and outside our industry, there's all kinds of really great charities as well. So do you get involved in any form of, you know, sort of paying that forward? Well, not, not, in, this, not in the normal sense. I mean, I, I, Full Sail University is here in, in, in uh, Florida, Central Florida, and I've always wanted to go and give lectures on things like that. You know, that's more of a teaching kind of thing, which is fine. But I, I just, I, I try to... I, I try, I mean, that's what I love about my Facebook page. And, you know, I really reach out to people and, and you know, when, when I have new LDs, you know, I always like when there's an opening act, I always go to the band and let them know that I'm here to help anything they can do. I, I'm always open to their LD or getting them like my, one of my crew guys. Um, I'm always willing to share, you know, I have a lot of younger LDs come to me and I have no, no problem. I, I, I love mentoring them or giving them tips and, yeah. and stuff. But I, I think one of my biggest assets I have is that, uh, I'm, I'm very open and friendly and happy. And I'm very also, it's a very, as I said, as we talked earlier in the conversation about, um, um, gratitude. not so much paying, paying it forward, but gratitude and, yeah. and the way you act and the way you act towards people, you know, the saying you're going to, you can meet the same bands on the way up as you do on the way down. That's so you true know, in this business. And, so true in this business. You know, so, but I'm always trying to, you know, I always try to, I, I try to, to act as if I, as, as, as I'm, uh, how do I want to put this? Uh, my actions are, are, you know, are 
speak very loudly for me, and, and I try to, to uh, um, impugn that on, on other people and the people, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, it's great. People tell me how much they love me and how much they enjoy me and how nice I am. And as I said, it's not so much it's conscious in a way because I want to make sure, but it's just the way I am, and I think it's important that you have to treat other people. Uh, you know, I with respect and, and, and openness and, and love and, and, you know, gratitude. I think you should reach out to Full Sail, by the way, because I, I believe that they would love to have you come in and lecture, you know, twice a year or, or once a year or once every trimester. I don't even know how they split their years up there. But, um, you know, I think one of the one of the areas that Full Sail has lacked is really wor- real world knowledge. You know, you're putting people out right. that are relatively right. green out of full sale, even though they've learned all the tech- technical aspects. But let's face it, you know, you and I sort of grew up at a different time where, you know, you didn't have a formal education. You learned by doing it and by working right. really hard and those types of things. So I think uh, bringing some of that information back to uh, full sale would be a really great thing. So, yeah. Well, that's my plan, you know, and, yeah. and I have some time off now. And another thing, I'm older and more experienced, so I have yeah. more experience to impart and knowledge sure, and stuff yeah. like that. So. Oh, I agree. So what what do you got going on next besides maybe an ACDC tour? And uh, Well, uh, I mean, Aerosmith goes back into residency in May, and then they have a, we have a big European tour we're doing. Yeah. And uh, then um, we are, uh, I'm supposed to do the Hollywood Vampires after that. Cool. And, uh, you know, there's talk about more residency dates in, in uh, Las Vegas, but nothing's, you know, nothing's confirmed yet. They, you know, let's see how they feel about it. Yeah. You know, and, and there's hope of ACDC going out. You know, I've, I've, uh, there's a friend of mine who owns a company called Big Fin Productions in Las Vegas, and he does a, he's like a boutique labor company, but he, we're trying to do a, like a production house kind of thing. You know, I'm, you know, I do some corporate stuff. I have to do, I do have to find a replacement for rock and roll because. Yeah these bands are literally dying, you know, I mean, I don't know what's yeah. going to come up next, but yeah, you know, and I, and I just turned 59 yesterday and I feel I have a lot more years to do this and good. And then we'll see what bands are touring. And if not, I have a, uh, you know, some corporate gigs are fun, especially like these guys want to rock and roll LD to do stuff. And yeah, I, I also TD yeah. some stuff. So that's kind of interesting for me, you know, looking at it from a different perspective and, well, I think you know, I but, think uh, so I think you've become synonymous with the rock and roll LD. You know, you Paul Dexter. There's still a handful of guys out there who I think you know really kind of helped build this to what it is today. You know, sort of the rock and roll lighting look, and uh, and you're one of them. So that's that's a pretty cool, uh, uh, you know, pretty cool position to be in. I guess to have uh, been part of this whole thing happening. Well, I, I know. It just still boggles my mind to, to look back. You know, the, the time flies, and, yeah. you know, I still, I still, I mean, I, I don't know. I still think of myself as young and a newbie-ish kind of thing, but, you know, I look at the accolades and the awards I win and the people who come up to me, and I'm, like, blown away still, you know. Yeah. It keeps it fresh, you know, yeah. that's for sure. Well, you're I'm coming just, up You're coming up soon on, on 40 years, uh, you know, since your first tour, right, in 83, I think well, you actually, said. Well, actually, it's. Well, the first, well, yeah, the first big tour, but I mean, my first show was May 10th, 1979 with Falcon 80, and that's already happened 40 oh, years. that and, is wild. You know? That's cool. Well, I, I oh, yeah. appreciate you very much, and, and uh, I thank you for coming on and doing this. We said we'd keep it under two hours, and it's two hours and 25 <laughs> minutes right now, so. Yeah, I know. I think we're both talkers, which is good. 
And, uh, but very interesting story and I appreciate you very much. And, uh, I'll be sure to send you a link as soon as it's uploaded. And, uh, certainly if I can ever do anything for you, just reach out. Thanks, Marcel. I appreciate it. And if you, uh, anything you need to t- contact me in the future, please feel free. Yeah. And I look forward to seeing you someday, some, sometime down the road. Thanks a bunch, Cosmo. Have a good one. You too. Sweet, sweet child